This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. It's going to be a great day for you, unless you're Jeff Sessions and you're heading up for your hearings. I thought you were going to say, unless you're Jeff Simpson. Unless you're Jeff Simpson. What do you know that I don't? Well, the Oscars, we won't know about the Oscars for two weeks. (laughs) That we do know. (laughs) Hey, uh, Clemson last night. Holy cow. What a game. That was cool. It actually uh, kept me up. About 9 o'clock, I started thinking, my body was saying, hey, it's time, Matt. Let's... Let's take this. Let's take this thing to bed and go just nine nine for the rest of the evening. I'm sorry, but I thought college football was over. Yeah, it is. It is now. Oh, I thought this, all the bowl games were over. This was the championship game, the big I game. See. Alabama, Clemson, bada boom, bada bing. Guess what happens? Clemson beats Alabama. Clemson number three. Clemson now the national champion. Mm, great game. It's a great game. Last year they played, and Alabama beat them last year. But now they get to just party. It was cool. It was a great game. What'd you think, Terry? You're a you're a football I, fanatic. I was very entertained. I uh, several times thought Alabama was just going to continue. I did too. Like here we go, them. Alabama was going to beat them up because <sighs> they uh, they have a very talented talented team, but they kept making mistakes. Mm-hmm. There was times where. Uh, what Alabama's defenders are just running into each other, <laughs> and all of a sudden the Clemson guys open. They there were some penalties. They got Clemson close, and then they made the plays to score. But uh, and the quarterback of Clemson, of uh, uh, I guess both quarterbacks, freshmen. No, the fr- the uh, I believe the Clemson quarterback was a senior. Oh, I mean Clemson yeah, was yeah. a senior. But the, yeah, the, the quarterback Alabama's, of Alabama, a freshman. Yeah, a true blue freshman. And he was making huge plays. Unbelievable. Yeah, they remind me of me when I was a freshman. Doubt that severely. <laughs> You were in a championship game that was broadcast. Mm. Oh, well, there's no. that part, and then there's just you know the athletic skills. There's a lot of it. It was just yeah, the huge muscles, <laughs> the lack of. Hey, since that. when did they have tents? They have little medical tents yeah. out on the field. What's that about? Um, it's so you can go in there, and if you need to, uh, take like a, some, take some, a bath. Sometimes, well, no, people get hit like in the hips. Yeah. Right, and and you get these the muscles clench up, yeah. or there's a deep bone bruise or something, and you can help the guy by massaging him. Okay, but you can't massage him no. through his pants and his pads. Right, you got to take. Your so you got to have on. like a private place on the sideline mm-hmm. in front of ninety thousand people where you can yeah. take your pants. Because I swear I saw some of those players wearing robes. Yeah, having They're, their having a pedicure. The Green Bay Packers, I believe, had one, and their quarterback Aaron Rodgers went in, and there was like a vast conspiracy theory about what was happening in that tent. Didn't he come out with cucumbers on his eyes? Yeah, he did. That was yeah. weird. Yeah, they're like, like a, that a spa? Mask. What are we doing in there? Totally weird. Hey, it's also, um, we'll, we'll talk more about the game. It's also, by the way, House Plant Appreciation Day. Yeah. I saw one of our workers here uh, after the holidays carrying her plant around. She was carrying oh, it, wow. I think, to go get it some water maybe. I think she felt bad. It had, it had been neglected. She was speaking words of of encouragement to it as yeah. well. No house plants in my house. Wow. Yes. Why do you hate Mother Earth so? I love my wife. She kills everything green. I have plants, but I just insist that they <laughs> sleep outside. <laughs> All our outside plants die too. 
Yeah, we don't have any inside plants, <laughs> just outside plants. We have plant-looking things. They're all fake, of course. Those are the best. Yeah, you, you dust them occasionally. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, just shake them off. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Go. I love the music choice. This is the music we use to celebrate house plant appreciation. As a, as a marriage consultant, as you yes. are, um, is that a, a, an effective way to share that kind of a statement? Say, I love my wife. Mm-hmm. She kills everything green. No, you pretty no? much just, yeah. Uh, okay. You are on the couch for the next month. Just, you, okay. You know, I never have to spend money on flowers. My wife just says, don't bother. Mine it's too. a waste of money. Mine too. Mine just, every time I buy her flowers, she's like... That, well, that must have cost you 30 See, bucks. My wife says that, then I send them to her office, and everyone in her office talks about oh, how great I am. Oh, that's good. Hey, yeah. try sending Bragging her a plant. Rights. Absolutely. Send her a plant. Send yeah. her a cactus. She can't ruin a cactus. Nothing says I love you more than a cactus. But a cactus can ruin her. All right. Good day. This, this music uh, is really helping. It's also, by the way, cut your energy cost day. Today's the day you yeah. you can... If you had a plant, you could oxygenate your house, and you could also, you know, put in better lighting, get some insulation. So turn off the light. Cut your energy. I haven't had a plant since I saw Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, that thing scared me to death. <laughs> what was Seymour? Was it Seymour? I think so, yeah. No, no? Uh, Audrey Two was the name of the plant. Oh, was? Because who, named... who was Seymour? Seymour is the man that is infatuated with Audrey One, a human. So he mm. names the plant after her. Audrey, too. How do you know this? I was in the play. Oh, that's right. I was Dr. Oren Scrivello. Pardon? DDS. DDS. I go off in a similar vein, and I get a nerd alert. Yeah. Yeah, Just saying. See, but I was just stating facts, not uh, fan theories. I do also. (laughs) They're not really fan theories. They're in the books. I'm sorry. It's uh, so true. So true. Okay, let's get to the headlines. Terry's got uh, other information that might be actually more important to us. President Obama should be delivering his farewell speech right now from Chicago. Uh, Beginning with George Washington in 1796, it's been a time-honored tradition for presidents to give one last major speech before leaving office. It gives those presidents a chance to reflect on their four or eight years in office, their accomplishments, and their setbacks to did George H.W. Bush give a farewell speech? I don't remember. I don't, I, I don't believe he did. Well, maybe he did. Because, I mean, he would have known, right? Because yeah, the yeah. election happened. He lost. Yeah. And, okay. Maybe he just snuck out. That was the last four-year president. So. Right. Um, so four years ago, President George W. Bush delivered a similar address to the University of Virginia. Mr. Obama's speech will come one day before President-elect Donald Trump is expected to give his first press conference since winning the election. Hmm. I, I didn't remember that we did this, but it makes sense. You, as a president, you want to say goodbye. Right. And George Washington, I believe one of his farewell speeches is highly regarded. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Everyone loves a good goodbye. Yeah. Speech. Reminisce. Yeah. Oh, well. Senator Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing for the post of U.S. Attorney General will pit him against civil rights uh, advocate uh, Representative John Lewis of Alabama, Representative Cedric Richmond of Louisiana, and Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey session has Donald Trump's backing for the cabinet post and the report and support of Republican colleagues in Congress, including Senator Chuck Grassley, who heads the Senate Judiciary Committee where mm. Sessions will have his confirmation hearing. But that same committee previously rejected Sessions for the federal judgeship in 1986 when his behavior was deemed too racist for the post. Sessions' alleged bigotry is expected to be front and center when his confirmation hearing begins later today. Wow. That's, that's exciting. That's your little pregame wrap. This, but, I mean, this is a big deal. This is the beginning of six of them this week, I think. 
Yeah, they postponed one. Oh, really? The education. Okay, they needed to. Yeah. Oh, they're still doing the ethics clearance. Yeah, they're trying to make sure they get all the paperwork in order. As Republicans approach repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act in the coming months, American voters are divided on what specific changes they want to see. Most everyone, though, wants changes. 41% of people in a new uh, political morning consult poll say they approve of, of, of the law. 52% of people disapproving. In fact, repealing Obamacare ranks as the most important issue for President-elect Donald Trump to address, according to voters. But what voters mean by changes is not an agreed-upon topic. Less than a third of voters, 32%, want the law repealed in part. 27% want it repealed completely. Mm. On the contrary, 24% want the law expanded, while only 11% want it to hold as is. On this, most people can agree, though, the law should not be replaced if there's not a plan to replace it. 61%. It's... I think it's it's like grabbing the tail of an elephant, or or as Chuck Schumer said, the dog that you know got the the bumper of the car oh, and right, doesn't know what to right. do with it. Yeah, because when you think about it, once you once the dog got the bumper, hey, it thought it had the world, right? And then it realized it's just going to be dragged around the city for the next day. So how right. about the elephant analogy? It's you grab the tail of an elephant, you think, hey, that's cool, I got this thing, yeah, I can you, handle it. You go through all the next effort to chase you know, it down. Now what? Now well, what do you do? I thought it was because an elephant never forgets. Well, that too. No. Uh, this little note. Uh, did you know that Mike Pence, the yeah, uh, vice president elect, elect yeah. has a pet rabbit? Really? Yeah. Wow. And he put out an Instagram post. Hold on. Why? I mean, I guess they have a child. They have a yeah. teenager. Uh-huh. They have a teenage girl, I believe. Yeah. I used okay. to have a pet rabbit's foot. I did, too. I used to have a rabbit missing a foot. So Mike Pence is seen as pretty boring, pretty... Vanilla. Yeah. I guess you could go for a term that way. Um, but a rabbit. But he has a pet rabbit. The name of the rabbit. Uh, Scooter. Marlon Bundo. Oh, cute. I guess you can name your rabbit anything you want. I guess. Punny. I just found that interesting. Marlon, Marlon Bundo. Marlon Bundo. Like the actor. Almost. And I have, a, I have a sound clip for you. What? Kellyanne Conway. Uh-huh. One of the myriad of spokespeople. Uh, counselors Is that what to her, the president. What's her, okay. Yeah. She was on CNN with uh, Chris Cuomo, who okay. hosts their morning, morning show. They're talking about Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. They're talking about um, the comments about oh, yeah. the uh, reporter from, this was like almost uh, the, the six months ago. The reporter with disabilities. New York Times hard, reporter. Yeah, that was embarrassed and, by Donald and Trump. Trump is, again, trying to explain that his hand motions he made as he was talking about the guy had nothing to do with the fact that the guy has a disability where it's kind of hard to control motor functions. Oh, no. Is that is that what he did to imitate? He uh, then imi- uh, yeah, Everyone thought he imitated. You watch the video, and he's, like, waving his hands, like, and then he went, rrr, rrr, and he oh, kind of waved no. his hands around, yeah. and you're like, okay, and it... Trump's trying to say he was mimicking this guy trying to grovel at the fact that he got a story incorrect or something. This is what Meryl Streep made the big issue about. Right. And the reporter has this disability and it looks like Trump was mocking the disability. Uh, So that's kind of the whole thing there. Now, they're having this discussion and Kellyanne Conway made a very interesting comment here. Let's hear this clip. You can't give him the benefit of the doubt on, on this. And he's telling you what was in his heart. You always want to go by what's come out of his mouth rather than look at what's uh, in his it's heart. It's a gesture that he's making on video. Don't, don't, so, do, don't listen to what I'm saying. So do we listen to what the president-elect is saying or do we, listen to, do we find out what's in his heart? Which, which yeah. do we listen to? Well, you, the reality is you would do both. 
In a re- no, your relationship right, coach. Right. You're talking to a husband and wife. They're yeah. having problems. Yeah. If somebody had said, "Don't listen to what comes out of my mouth. Listen to what's in my heart." How well, what, what what would you find that difficult? Well, would that well, be? Well, no. Watch this. How many times has a man told his wife he loved her yeah. and had an affair? Okay. So which do we believe more? Isn't what the, he did or what he said? Isn't there a saying like the old saying? You're the things that your heart is feeling are so loud that I can't hear yeah, what who you're you saying. Are, speak so loudly I can't hear the words you're saying. Something that, yeah, I think you missed it a little bit. So, no, that, so, it was verbatim. So, so I think it's actually both. So in a relationship, but, is that productive? Will that be a successful? No, this will okay. not work long term. Okay. Because the problem with Donald is he always is talking. Yeah. And we've yet to see if he'll follow up on it. Right. So he always said he would build the wall mm. and the Mexican government would pay for it. I guess, or the Mexican people would pay for it. Right. But now we'll see if he actually does it. And he always said he would repeal Obamacare. And now mm. people are going to see if he does it. But now he's realizing it's complicated. Well, yeah. The, the Affordable way, Care Act is a very complicated thing to The same way President Obama exactly. made a huge deal about Guantanamo. I know. And it's still open. See, because he got into problem. office and found out it was tough. He got, how am I going to shut this down? So this is why we don't trust politicians. And this is why we needed Bernie Sanders on television last night. Yeah, I saw a lot of people didn't even notice that. Well, it was kind of in the middle of something else. Yeah, but that can you imagine having to be the spokesperson for Donald Trump? Mental gymnastics. But then Kellyanne Conway makes the comment, "You don't. Why do you keep judging him on what he says?" Yeah. Well, because that's all we got right now. No, I don't know if she meant to say that. No, no, I'm sure she didn't. But in saying it, it kind of reveals. Kind of probably the difficulty of her job, but that's because maybe she knows what he truly yeah. feels, mm-hmm. but he doesn't say that. No, and everybody, a lot of people point. say that when you really meet Donald, you're going to see he's. And when you meet with him, he's a good guy. He's really probably much more liberal than he is conservative, and blah blah blah. The reality is, he then still makes comments. So if he doesn't want to be judged harshly, yeah. then he needs to shut the flapper and quit talking and quit tweeting. If he would quit tweeting, a lot of these issues wouldn't come up. Right. Because every morning it's like, well, he tweeted this he, again. And then he tweeted the Actually, whole reaction to Meryl Streep, the re- which yeah. don't do. The reaction to Meryl Streep, there was some tweets I saw where they were trying to guess. At what time oh, is this going to happen? How fast is this going to hit? It hit at 624 Eastern, AM Eastern. And the guy was guessing like, well, the guy guessed 624 and it hit at like 627, something oh, like that. Oh, really? So the guy was really close. But he waited that long? Yeah, he waited till about six. He waited almost, all night, almost six thirty in the morning. Well, that's when he tweets is in the morning because he knows it's in the middle of the news cycle. All the morning shows are going Smart. full strong on the East Coast. That's when he tweets. It takes a while to come up with a good zinger against Meryl Streep. I know, but, you're, but the zinger was what did he say? Like she's a mediocre. Yeah, it wasn't very good. She just got her lifetime career award, yeah. and she's mediocre, or a failure, or something. Over, you know? Overrated, I go. think. Yeah, overrated. Oh boy. <laughs> It's hard. Donald, Donald, Donald. Shh. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Amaze Maybe us. He needs to listen to some of this music. House Plant Appreciation Day. Donald needs a house plant. Every night about three in the morning when he wants to go off on a tweet, a tweet uh, attack, he just turns to his plant and they talk. <sighs> Beautiful. Well, we will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about what may be uh, one of the biggest things Donald Trump's going to have to face, men that aren't working. It's America's invisible crisis, 
according to our next guest, about 20 uh, percent, actually 15 percent or so of the population of men aren't working. That looks like it's going to be going up over the next decade as well. So stick with us. We're talking about uh, the invisible crisis. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. In uh, America, one in six working-age men are jobless. At the current rates, one in five men will be jobless in one generation from now, matching the male unemployment rates of the Great Depression. The huge growth of non-working class of men is a new and unfamiliar crisis for America. What does it mean for the American social life and economy? Here to speak with us today is uh, Dr. Nick Eberstadt. Um, the Henry Went Chair at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Matt. This is a really – I mean, this this is, it seems like, one of the big reasons Donald Trump um, won the election is he he was able to somehow connect to this group of men that are struggling. Talk about what's happening with men in the workforce today. Well, uh, I call it an invisible crisis in my book, and the reason I call it that is because the talking classes and the deciding classes kind of didn't notice over the past half century that there was an ongoing quiet catastrophe befalling America, Mm. and that catastrophe was the collapse of work for men. It happened gradually, starting in the 60s, but is continuing to this day. Um, If you look at the employment-to-population ratios, the work rates for prime-age guys, the 25 to 54 group, the key working group, those are lower today than they were in 1940 at the tail end of the Depression. So it is not totally hyperbolic to say we've got a depression-scale problem going Mm. on now. If we had the same sort of work rates today that we had in 1965, 1965 was a time of true full employment. Today, people are talking about near full employment and all of this happy talk. If we had 1965-style work rates for men, we'd have almost another 10 million guys with paid work in our country today. Just think how different our country wow. is. Wow. That is yeah. – and the taxes uh, the, and the the income and the money in the economy. Holy cow. That's crazy. And the family. And yeah. The, the family support. I mean, and the social mobility. And yeah. The growth and the uh, and the lessened welfare dependence and the lessened uh, burden on the deficit and public debt. I mean – it. Uh, there is absolutely nothing good that has come out of the collapse of work for men. It's bad in 360-degree direction. Is, and is it, it's, is it impacting men more than women? Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, in the U.S., as in other Western societies, there was a huge transformation after World War II, which was the uh, change in the economic uh, role of women. I mean, women have always worked very hard, it's just that now they can get paid for it outside of the house. Um, so we, we saw a big increase in the work rates for women in the U.S., kind of like everywhere else, between the end of World War II and about the year 2000. 
Um, since the year 2000, work rates for girls have been going down the same as for guys. Mm. Uh, both males and females have been hit badly since about the year 2000. Uh, they're sharing the pain. But the, uh, the decline in work for men has been going on much longer, and it has been much deeper. Wow. Is it um, – I mean when I think of 20 percent eventually of the, of the male population not working, and two, um, just kind of as a psychologist in my head, the impact it has on the psyche of a man and his identity of a doer and a, a provider, I mean it's, it's got to have some seriously far-reaching impact on life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my book, uh, in, in, Me in Men Without Work, one of the ways I try to look at this is by analyzing what are called time use surveys. These are the things the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out to fill in questionnaires for what do you do between the time you wake up and you go to sleep. Mm. Um, it's mainly to try to understand how, <clears throat> how work patterns are changing in the United States. What we can track what people say um, for the men who are neither working nor looking for work. And in this uh, prime age group, that's now an army of about 7 million. It's really discouraging to see uh, what's reported there. Uh, the good news is that about a tenth of these guys are basically adult students. They're training for skills to get back in the game. If you look at the remainder of this group, uh, they basically don't do civil society. They don't do religious activity. They don't do charitable work. They don't do volunteering. Yeah. Um, they do precious little help with uh, children or other people in the house, even though they've got nothing but spare time. They do surprisingly little housework, chores around the house. What they do instead, or at least what they report doing instead, is watching, is watching TVs, DVDs, uh, Internet, handheld devices, whatever else, for 2,100 hours a year. It's like a full-time job, wow. except it's like a full-time job of idleness. Yeah. And uh, add to this the report that was just done by a former uh, chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors last fall, where on the basis of some research of his own, he reported that almost half of these guys are taking pain pills every day. Oh, boy. So we have this vision of people sitting and watching and not doing much else while they're stoned. And medicating, yeah, self-medicating, or either yeah, illegally medicating or, or finding some way to escape. Yep. Yeah, I mean, now obviously some people, uh, some people are in pain. Uh, some people are in metaphysical pain. It's not as if people aren't, right. uh, aren't hurting. But it's, a, it's, a, it's such a depressing picture, and it is such a waste of human potential. Is and I guess I mean because that all everything you were explaining sounds like depression, really. I mean yeah. it's it's they're depressed, they're they're avoidant, they're medicating, <laughs> they're trying to escape. Is it? I, I can just hear people say, "Well, you know, in, in the last eight years, Obama's created ten million jobs. What do you want us to do?" But wh why aren't the jobs working for them? Why aren't they very, able to get them, find them, question. get to them? Right. Very important question. Um, so there's uh, so there's a supply problem, a demand problem, and an institutional barrier problem. If you look at this from you know with kind of like economic analysis, the supply problem is the weak demand, uh, the weak demand for work. Um, in the U.S. and in all other rich countries, there has been some decline 
in the workforce participation rate for prime age guys over the last uh, two generations. Um, probably having to do with globalization, changes in trade, offshoring, decline of manufacturing, you know, all of the rest that we kind of know about. Mm-hmm. Problem is that the U.S. has won the race to the bottom. Uh, we have dropped faster, farther than any other rich country in terms of workforce participation rates for guys in this key age group. So that's one thing. The second thing is about supply. You know, are people less likely to look for jobs than they did in the past? Well, what we know is that the main reason that uh, that there's been this decline in work is because people are no because men are no longer in the workforce at all. They're neither looking for jobs. They're neither working nor looking for jobs. And uh, when when these guys are asked in these big surveys, you know, why are you out of the labor force? Uh, only about one in seven says it's because I can't find work. Um, if you look at the group as a whole, the unworking men, this army of seven million and the prime age groups, um, if, if you if you look at this uh, group as a whole, almost three-fifths of them are on some sort of disability program. And um, about two-thirds of them are in households taking disability benefits. And that does not allow you a princely lifestyle. Right. It's a kind of a, it's a, it's a pretty penurious lifestyle. But it is an alternative to work, and our welfare state has provided, has been able to finance an alternative lifestyle. Then there's a third part that I think is terribly important. I write about this in my book, Men Without Work, in Chapter 9. This is the whole explosion of criminalization or criminality. Um, We hear about uh, mass incarceration, the two and a half, two plus million people behind bars today. That is true. Um, what we don't hear about is that there are that, that those people in prison are only about a tenth of all of the Americans who have felonies in their background. We've got about 20 million invisible Americans, about one in eight adult men, who has a felony now. And the U.S. government kind of forgot to keep information on this. Um, I believe, and I try to show in this book, that one of the reasons that the U.S. looks so bad compared to other countries with respect to workforce participation rates for men is because we have a uniquely high fraction of our population who are felons. Mm. Um, And you can't get a job, right? Because there's background checks. There's um, Well, I I can't I can't tell you exactly why why it should be, but I can tell you that guys who have been to prison are way more likely to be out of the workforce than guys who have quote, only had an arrest, mm-hmm. and guys who, quote, only have had an arrest are more likely to be out of the workforce than guys who've never been in trouble with the law. I mean, I can see a lot of, it could be discrimination, it could be that people who are in prison lose skills, it could be that the sort of people who get in trouble are less likely to be attractive to employers. But whatever the reasons, we don't even have the first bit of information that would help us figure out how to turn this around and how to uh, unlock the uh, potential and the value for society and the economy mm. of this enormous invisible army. And especially if we don't talk about it, right? It's it's mm-hmm. because I'm assuming, too, this um, transcends ethnicity, um, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, it's it, is it every race? Is it every every gen? I mean, every male I'm, uh, I'm, I'm ethnic background? Talk about the data. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. So, um, 
as I said, I, I think it is kind of scandalous that the U.S. government doesn't actually collect this information. Um, if you if you look for it in the statistical year, uh, abstract, or if you look for it online under you know uh, BLA, Bureau of Labor Statistics or anything, there's none of this. So I had to go into some uh, other surveys, you know, non-government surveys, uh, which asked questions about uh, you know people who'd gotten in trouble as well as you know their incomes and so forth. You know. Uh, um, Turns out, just as you said, um, no matter what age, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what your educational background, um, if you have prison time, you're way more likely to be out of the workforce than just an arrest. Just an arrest, you're way more likely to be out of the workforce than somebody who's never had trouble in that way. I mean, it's totally commonsensical, but it's uh, but it's kind of ignored. Yeah, boy. It's it is. It, there's there's your there's your invisible crisis. We're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt, and he's walking us through some of his research and his findings in his book, uh, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. He, again, is is just shining the light on a problem that may explain to some degree, you know, a way that Donald Trump may have resonated with a certain group of people that are hopeless and feeling like there's nothing there for me anymore. Some of these people, by the way, then end up end up without a job, watching a lot of TV, not contributing necessarily to the institutions and to society and to families. Um, also, drug use goes up. Suicide rates are higher. Boy, I mean, this gets into a lot of the big social issues we're dealing with. And um, according to our guest, we're, we're not even tracking the numbers on a lot of this stuff. We'll take a break, come back, talk more about this invisible crisis. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Nicholas Eber, uh, Eberstadt, and he is the author of the book, America's Invisible Crisis, Men Without Work. He also has written other books, uh, including Poverty of, the, uh, Poverty of the Poverty Rate and A Nation of Takers. And he is, holds the Henry Went Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. And they, are, uh, they research extensively demographics and economic development. And he's here to educate us about something we may have sensed is going on out there. You may have noticed that men in your family, men in uh, your life aren't working as much. They, they maybe are unemployed and are maybe chronically unemployed. Maybe they're uh, receiving some, uh, some assistance from the government. Maybe they have or are, are actually medicating or self-medicating. Maybe they have a disability of some sort, but it's impacting about – uh, I guess anywhere from 10 to 15, uh, maybe even 20 percent soon of American men in the, in the workforce. We appreciate you being here, Dr. Nick Eberstadt. Hey, thank you for inviting me, Matt. This is – it's huge. And I mean then it gets into in the ego side of it for the male, the wanting to provide. Um, but like you were saying, we, these men – are really just removing themselves almost from society in general. They're not participating in their family work or their family, their housework. They're not participating in church. 
Is it is this a political problem? Is this a cultural problem? How does this how do we address it? Well, of course, it becomes a political problem when the people who more or less by nature are designed to be strong become dependent on everybody else. Uh, It becomes uh, kind of unnatural for uh, for men not to be providers, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that has all sorts of um, moral and psychological uh, ramifications, I think, as well. Um, what we um, what I what I think we see uh, if we look at these numbers is that there is a deep importance to human agency. Um, I mean, in the social sciences, there's this temptation to say, well, there are these huge, uh, big um, statistical odds, and everybody is a sort of a victim of these overarching social forces. Well, the social forces, of course, are there. I mean, we know that African-American men are uh, disproportionately likely to be in the army of unworking. We know that that lower-educated men are disproportionately unlikely to be in that same army. But look at how people can change their odds. In the United States today, um, the labor force participation rates are higher for black guys who happen to be married than for white guys who are unmarried. Hmm. So marriage overcomes whatever sort of you know, racial divide we have today. If you look at uh, if you look at immigration uh, the same sort of way. A black guy who migrates to America is more likely to be in the workforce than a white guy who is born here. Uh, If you look at the uh, people who have no high school degree, a guy who is married has about the same odds of being in the workforce as a guy who has a college degree. Uh, A guy who has no high school degree and is unmarried the bottom has fallen out on the uh, on the whole labor force participation for him, and it's not so. It's not just that people that a wedding ring or a green card has some sort of magic power that uh, makes you do better. It's all of the motivations and attitudes and values that are associated with this. Uh, so I think we can't forget the importance of human agency in this situation. Boy, that's and that gives us hope, right? Because we yeah, we, we can change it with agency, right? We can we can try to do something about. It. If, if if I have a family member that I see is suffering, maybe fallen into this area where they were disabled, they're receiving some some mm-hmm. uh, some support from the government, but they're also self medicating, they're depressive. Um, what what would you suggest I do to ignite the agency? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that family ties, family connectedness, faith. All of those things, I think, are immensely important. I didn't get into the whole question of faith in my book just because I didn't have much uh, statistical data that I could latch on to. Um, but if I'm speaking, so to speak, ex cathedra, I have no doubt that faith is also terribly important mm. as part of the solution in this uh, in this whole area in, in turning things around. The more li- the more uh, likely that people are disconnected, the harder I think it is uh, for them to get back in the game. Is it because I, I look at it too? I mean, and then and we've already seen and I'm not. There's not a real tie here, but we've seen one of the things that pr- that promotes. Um, the uh, the enrolling of somebody into a terrorist mentality is is you know not having the jobs sitting home being angry being uh, kicked out of community and society feeling alone 
Um, but it, there, it's it's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> it's not. It's just yeah. not good. We need to. We, they need to figure out a way. I mean, that's why going to work is valuable just socially because of connections and friendships. A lot of our friendships come from there. Is there – when you wrote the book on on America's invisible crisis, this, this doesn't change unless we start talking about it, right? We've got to start measuring it and making it known. Absolutely. No, you know, you're so right. Uh, I mean, the the – thing I wanted to do most with this book was just bring this problem uh, in to the small extent I could to bring this problem into the public square to help people shine a spotlight on it. I mean, um, I don't pretend that I have all of the answers to what we need to do to change this situation. It's a long-term historical problem, and it won't change tomorrow. But we know that if people don't pay attention to it, people from all different parts of the political spectrum. If we don't all agree this is a huge problem and commit to turning it around, it's going to get worse. Mm. Um, where do you see the the election and the results of the election? How do you – do you sense a Donald Trump cabinet will do anything different than maybe a President Obama that might help this crisis? Well um, – well, certainly uh, in his uh, in his election campaign, uh, President-elect Trump uh, tried to speak to the collapse of jobs in uh, lots of different areas of America. So I think that an awful lot of uh, awful lot of people in America are hoping or expecting that he's going to do something to try to turn this situation around. Mm. Uh, the question is what. Um, I was trained as an economist. I know that trade wars lose jobs. Yeah. Uh, if we if we have a trade war, we're going to end up with less manufacturing jobs than uh, than what we have now. However bad that situation may be, um, there are things which I think can be done. Uh, which I mean, to I, as I say, I don't claim to have all the answers, but uh, from my perspective. Um, revitalizing small business in America. Small business is the job creator that wins on its own merits, but also it helps create demand for work. Um, trying to fix our broken, dysfunctional disability system that I think wins on its own merits, but it might also help incentivize people to get back into the labor force. And, uh, and doing something to shine the light on our invisible 20 million Americans who made a mistake in their background, or the mm. people who paid their debt to society, to try to bring them back into the economy and back into society. Um, I mean, we're a forgiving nation. And, um, and I think that if we had evidence, we could have evidence-based policies there, too. So that's kind of criminal reform, justice reform, criminal justice reform, making sure that we we're not just throwing them in prison, but we're actually helping them change their lives. Well, I mean, after a, after people are out, um, what works in getting people back into the labor force or getting more people back into the labor force? We've got a uh, we've got a federal system. We can have a glorious federal experiment with fifty competitive experiments going on, Maybe, and we, we can learn from that. Mm. Now we've had and we've talked a lot uh, over the years on the show about just yeah the impact of the the prison system and and then and also I guess drugs would be another part of this. I mean, a lot of this is being backfilled with with drugs. Mm-hmm. 
Well, th- th- there's the there's the terrible opioid yeah. epidemic that's uh, that's burning through America right now. Sure. And and then, too, we're hearing trailing that are suicide rates and other things. So it's, it, it is. I mean, it's it's it is an epidemic. Absolutely so. Absolutely so. But if but if we uh, if we shine the spotlight on this, if we say we're not going to turn our eyes away, I think we got a chance of uh, turning this thing around. Why do you think? Why do you think it's become invisible? Like there are enough people suffering, and a lot of this can be drawn back to the conclusions I think you've made about you know about a lack of a job. Really, um, yep. what? Why? Why aren't we? catching it you know i've thought about that um i've thought about that a lot and i have um i've got three guesses and they you know they may be part of it or you know not part of it but my three guesses are number one the um what my friend and colleague at american enterprise institute what charles murray calls the bubble the kind of protective barrier that separates the privileged elite from the rest of the real America, I think that's gotten a whole lot thicker over the last 50 years. Mm. I think that's part of it. People inside the bubble um, who make policy don't know what's going on in America more, you know, much more than the past. Uh, I think also, unfortunately, in uh, the way that policies and uh, have evolved, um, there are designated victim classes, and uh, working age men are not a designated victim class. They're supposed to be strong and self-reliant. Uh, third reason, I think, is because this has been a sort of a dog that hasn't barked. Hmm. People are, in this group are living in quiet desperation. They're not burning down cities. They're not uh, starting political revolutions. They're not creating riots. Um, and because this has been uh, very largely a voluntary exodus out of work, um, it hasn't. Uh, it hasn't created visible, uh, you know, public square, public safety sort of problems, mm. and it's been easier to ignore that way. I mean, and it, it kind of makes sense where, you know, maybe the male ego would rather just, you know, walk away and die than make uh, a scene about their demise. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, it's, I, I, I really do. I really, it, it really bothers me that this has been allowed to be invisible. Let's put yeah. it that way. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this study. Well, I love it. And I think we shine a light on it. And we've got to talk about it more and really reach out to the people around us yeah. that are suffering and that are, that are struggling. One great way to do that would be to go check out the book, America's Invisible Crisis, Men Without Work, written by Dr. Nick Eberstadt. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your great research on this topic. Um, You can find out more by going to www.aei.org, aei.org, and uh, find out more. That's the American Enterprise Institute. Find out more about uh, Dr. Eberstadt's great work. We will take a break, come back. There is hope out there, and agency's part of it, as Dr. Eberstadt teaches us. We have some choices to make, um, but we also have to make them you know, as a society as well, as even a church or a family or a marriage or all the other institutions that matter. We'll take a break, give you some ideas when we come back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Not having a job, you know, always assuming you'd be living the American dream. 
And let's say you just never thrived. You never made it. You never succeeded. You never got out. You never got the education. You, you got fired from your first job or whatever. It's tough, especially um, when we talk about, you know, how do you raise a family? How do you how do you do this? And you're not you're not a victim. So, you know, just get a job. That's what your in-laws would say. Just get a job. But there's other reasons, too. There's probably mental health issues as well. Terry's got uh, some, I, I think it sounds like it's going to be sad information. Not really sad. Because this number doesn't really change much. But it's real. But it's real. And it, 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 and if you don't you, have a job, this could be stressful. Uh, so it says the Department of Agriculture says the estimated cost of raising a child from birth to age 17 is $233,610. Wow. Or as much as almost $14,000 annually. $233,000. That's the average for a middle-income couple with two children. It's a bit more expensive in urban parts of the country, less so in rural areas. The estimated release Monday is based on 2015 numbers, so a baby born this year is likely to cost even more. It's a 3% increase from the prior year, a higher rate than inflation, which is interesting. The main cost includes housing, uh, food, transportation, health care, child care, and education, and clothing and other miscellaneous expenses. How, how much is it per year? $14,000. Okay, let me do a little math here. because Now, it, when they say a middle income, yeah. the median income in the U.S. is 52000 a year. So – If you're supposed to – I mean, okay. That means if you were paying child support to sustain your child based on those numbers, you'd have to have a child support payment of about $1,166 a month. Yeah. But the reality is if you're making $50,000, you're not paying that. You're you're not. You're paying $300, $400, $500. Oh, my heavens. This is crazy. So that's a lot of money. And I have six kids. And then it says the uh, the middle income married couple families of the urban northeast spent the most at two hundred fifty three thousand. Mm. Followed those in the urban west of two hundred thirty five thousand. The urban south two hundred twenty one thousand. So it kind of changes around the country depending on different areas. And if you have situations. you know special children that are advanced and skilled, or if you just have average mediocre children, maybe you can just spend less on them. Okay, great news. Well, two hundred and twenty something thousand dollars, folks. We'll take a break. It's, it's good. Life's good. Families are important. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side, giving you the handbook to life. Nobody was born with a handbook. You have to figure it out. But if you listen to the show enough, we will give you the tools you need. All the information, the latest, the greatest. I was born with a handbook, but the instructions were written in Chinese. Ah, see? Then you need to use our Chinese translator. We haven't used that lately. We have invented here at BYU a translator where we can translate uh, We can translate pretty much anything from, and from any language to, to any language. It's, a pretty, it's the universal translator. We'll bring that out uh, 
Got to remind me to do, do something for the translator, Jeff. Uh, great day, by the way. Houseplant Appreciation Day. You got to love your plant. Thank you, Jeff. Just go sit next to your plant today. Pull it in close. Touch its little leaves. When was the last time you told your plant that you loved it? Think about uh, that. Not, I, I don't think I ever have. Wow. I know. Wow. I don't talk to my plants. But today I will. Helps it grow. It, sing its songs. My kids are screaming and our plants play basketball with my kids. The ball ends up getting hitting the plant all the time. And it seems okay with it. Today's household or house plant appreciation day. Mm. Sure it sounds crazy. But when you've got that plant in the corner of the room, it's being ignored, lack of attention, never gets touched, never gets loved. Make today special. Love your plant. Give it the warmth that it gives you. The, the plant? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't it get its warmth from the sun, though? I don't know. Probably. So maybe we should just love the sun. I'm not really sure how plants work. Yeah. Apparently. I tried plugging mine in. It didn't work. <laughs> it's also cut your energy cost day. It's a busy day. Today's the day you can, let's just use less Electricity, turn off some lights for heaven's sakes. Every time I leave the studio, I turn off the lights. And then I walk by, someone has turned the lights on again. And then they leave them on. I thought you turn off the lights when you try to duck out of the office early, though. I do that, too. Or the times when dad yells at you because you left the door open. We're not heating the neighborhood. In fact, I found myself doing that. The kids were – one of the the parents were dropping a kid off and the door was open for about a minute. Hmm. And I about pulled out the, hey, we're not trying to heat the whole neighborhood. <laughs> ah, it's cold outside. It's cold outside. I'm Knock getting old. Yeah. Today, by the way, we're going to, we will be speaking with um, a researcher about what happens to your brain when you feel the spirit. Mm. It's a pretty cool study out of the University of Utah, where when you're having a spiritually religious kind of experience and you feel this connection to a higher power, the spirit, what's happening in your brain? They, were, they did MRIs on people as they were feeling the spirit, and they can identify with at least this group of people, which were Mormon return missionaries, I believe, hmm. about what's going on in their brain when they're feeling the spirit, and they've actually identified the location of where they're feeling it. Ask him if it – is he looking at like things that – activities that give you – Mm-hmm. Uh, great levels of, of pleasure in a sense. Yeah. So they were watching. So they would watch videos that were moving and motivational. They'd read quotes from okay. their religious leaders, but world religious but leaders. Is it and, the same reaction? Say, if you really enjoy a video game, I would. Does your brain do the same reaction? Well, I would. I we have to find that out. Is it a dopamine thing? We'll find that out okay. because I think what's interesting about it is what what they're experiencing may be different than what is being experienced by Eastern religions Oh, when somebody's meditating right. or in a state of like Zen. Hmm. So that has to still be vetted. Interesting. But for a group of very religious people uh, like the LDS faith, it, it's an interesting question about what's actually happening in the brain. Where are they and what's it stimulating? What is it a chemical reaction? Can you get the same reaction from sugar? 
we'll have to ask this great doctor. <laughs> I mean, because if you've ever had like a really good dessert, some would call that spiritual. Does a nice Diet Coke hit the same mm-hmm. pleasure centers that religion does we'll, for these we'll people? Because but they're also in their brain. So they're they're in their prefrontal cortex or oh. part of their brain that – and they're they're actually having an experience. You know what it okay. could be? It could be a bit of undigested bread. You know, it could be that there's more grave than of gravy – or there's more of gravy than of grave to these spiritual experiences. Huh? Par- pardon? Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. Now nah, we're done with that. Wow. Mm. Yeah, we're done. With yeah, that. Christmas is over. Yeah, you had you should have quoted that in December. Yeah. He's quoting Ebenezer Scrooge. My son wants to watch all the Christmas movies we have recorded. I'm like, no, it's not Christmas. Son. I'm gonna delete those and then like yeah. tears, so I had to not do that. It's hard. It's yeah. taking up like twenty percent of my D V R. Come on. Come on, son. We can play with the this plant. House. Hey, um, so we'll get to all of that fun, the science behind spirit and feeling of the spirit. Also, um, we've got a a lot of headlines to get to, crazy stories about break-ins, a new trailer that's coming out, Mm. about a new break-in. A lot of people trying to break into prison, it seems like. Weird. We'll get to that. But first to the headlines. With Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. First off, I was incorrect last hour. I said that uh, President Obama should be speaking. He won't speak till tonight. Okay. So instead of messing up the morning news cycle, he's going to mess up primetime TV. Yeah. Which so is okay because speak. there's always Netflix. Yeah. So that's tonight about 7 30, 8 o'clock. This depending is his on last you address. You got to. Right. And he's in Chicago? Yes. Good. Okay. So that'll happen tonight. We'll talk about We have some clips or something from tomorrow. But I was very confused. Uh, Senator Sessions. Currently yeah. being grilled by the Judiciary Committee or whatever committee yeah. goes after the uh, Attorney General pick. So that's kind they're, of they're interesting. Grill, they're grilling with him? No, they're just sort of talking about, you know, how he needs to do the job. Wait, is this with the guy that likes to barbecue? No. Oh, it's a different. A, okay, different they said grilling. something like, your job as Attorney General is not to be the personal attorney for President Trump, but before the people. Right. You have to protect the people. And we have a lot of issues so we'll figure that out. Where the people need protection. The House Oversight Committee Chairman Jason Chaffetz from Utah said that his committee will continue to investigate Hillary Clinton's use of private email server during her time as Secretary of State. Despite the fact that the presidential race is over, this was never a political targeting uh, situation in the beginning. Just because there is a there is a political election doesn't mean it goes away, Chaffetz told reporters on Monday. So, of course, I'm going to continue to pursue that. Hmm. Um. Yeah. So seems like there's other things we could also be investigating. No, we're gonna like the Russian. Even thing. though President Trump told 60 Minutes after the election that they're they're good people, I don't want to hurt them. Speaking of the Clintons, President-elect Trump said that uh, he told the New York Times he goes, "I think we have to get the focus of the country looking forward." So he seems to be moving on. Others, not so much. Yeah, he's moving on. As the Senate prepares to vote for on a budget resolution this week, the first step in repealing sections of Obamacare, prominent Republicans have voiced concern about how to replace the health care initiative that currently insures 20 million Americans. The GOP plan has become known as the repeal and delay strategy, which entails a vote on the Affordable Care Act. Repeal while also delaying it from going into effect. Several prominent Republicans have uh, voiced concerns over this. Senator Bob Corker was one of many lawmakers who told fellow Republicans he believed the strategy could prove problematic and not very appealing. Mm. Senator Rand Paul told CNN Monday that he believes a replacement must be up for vote on the same day that the law is repealed. 
Okay. Or there will be political pushback and retribution <sighs> from voters because you took their insurance away. Right. Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer will resign from the company uh, board of directors following the company's purchase by uh, Verizon SEC filing show. Mayer became CEO in 2012. One of the tech world's youngest female CEOs, but her tenure is marked by the company's steady decline as users abandon the website for other platforms. In July 2016, Verizon announced it will purchase Yahoo for $4.8 billion. There's been some talk they may ask for a discount because of the two major uh, security breaches that have... Yeah, but weren't those years that. ago? They were years ago, but they didn't disclose them during the negotiations for the $4.8 billion purchase to, of a product uh, that has been compromised, yeah. basically. You know, mm-hmm. so... I don't know. We'll so see breaching what, does lower also, the lower the value of the asset. Maybe they're also going to split the company up. They they own fifteen percent of Yahoo Japan, which apparently is huge, uh, a money maker for them. And also, there's a uh, company kind of like eBay, Amazon, sort of hmm. hybrid in in China called Alibaba. Yeah, yeah, and they they're own huge. A huge portion of that. They're going to probably make a company that just manages that stock. Ooh, Alibaba. Yeah, and they're Yahoo. they're changing it to Altaba or something. Some name. It's ah, some weird name. They're switching Yahoo. Cool. To. So Yahoo might just cease to exist. Who knows? But what, yeah, that's crazy. And finally, undergraduate. Yahoo. There we go. Undergraduate researchers at the University of Lancaster. Yeah. Yesterday it was about the zombie apocalypse. Right. Oh, University. what do they do this time? Today they've determined that to fire lightning from your fingertips, as the uh, Sar- the Sith Lords did, like Darth Sidious and Tyrannius, who's oh, actually Emperor Palpatine and Count Dooku, uh, you you need to consume a trillion calories. That's about 1.6 billion Big Macs. The researchers in the study titled How to Be a Healthy Sith Lord crunched the numbers using plate capacitors as stand-ins for Sith Lord and his zapped victim. So there's some detail if you needed it. As it uh, – it's all confusing as it says for non-eggheads. But essentially any Sith Lord you encounter would appear more like Jabba the Hutt than the late Christopher Lee's uh, dark side user. We can thus conclude that without drawing power from some other source, it is unlikely a Sith Lord could – healthily produce lightning from their fingertips. It's just Nerdalus! humanly impossible to do that. Just so you know. 1.6 billion Big Macs if you want to shoot lightning from your fingertips. I know, but see... Uh, I'm pretty sure all you need is one monster energy drink. Yeah. Okay. If I've seen, I've seen, I've seen sparks flying from your fingers after one of those. Different approaches. Yeah. yeah. The, the problem with this... Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're just doing these little exercises to seem cutting edge, I guess, to use their science to show, to make it work with current pop culture. They apparently have some sort of seminar where they encourage their students to take the science they're learning and And apply it to Star Wars fictional life. Or whatever you want. Kind of use it in an interesting way to explain the science. And they did that right there. But should we really... Should we really taunt these nerds? Nerds this way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I felt because, like you were going that way. Well, now a nerd is like, okay, so no one could really eat a billion Big Macs, but right. maybe we could make it into a paste. You could. And we could just somehow. Some have accused it. McDonald's of yeah. doing that already. And, and then the, the people on bicycles can swig them while they're uh-huh. riding. There you go. Yeah, and then you, as a Sith Lord, you could just fire. Yeah. Fire bolts of electricity out uh-huh. of your fingertips. Right. I'm. I have a feeling if you ate a hundred Big Macs, yeah, <laughs> you'd have a lot of stuff firing out of your body and your fingertips. Probably. Don't you think? I think I saw that. That was on a 
that was on a documentary. <laughs> Supersize me. Supersize me. Yeah, and electrocute others. It was a great documentary. I just found that. Thought you would be interested. <sighs> well, we appreciate that. Yep. I mean, really, is it? I mean, it, the fun thing is that would be fun science for a bunch of fourteen-year-olds, right? Right. To talk about that. Sure. Maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe. The sad thing is, it's probably being supported by the UK government. Is this in? Is right. this in there? Oh yeah. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with it. It's just money. No big deal. Man. Um, hey, okay. So police in Florida released a video of two burglary suspects who accidentally turned themselves in by fleeing from officers hmm. in a chase, and they drove directly into a police parking lot. <clears throat> How many times have we said, know your exit strategy? Plan ahead. Plan ahead. Plan ahead or plan to fail. <laughs> or go to jail. It's your job. Uh, Boca Raton Police Chief Dan Alexander said in a Facebook post that a residential uh, a resident reported a burglary in progress at his neighbor's home Wednesday that, and gave police a description of three suspects, two men and a, women, a woman, and the vehicle that they were in. Then the vehicle sped away from the area, and when police approached, they, they, the police ended up finding this car. And when they approached, the suspects fled on foot. The female suspect was arrested near the scene of the crash. Male suspects were fleeing northwest. Fortunately, the male suspects turned themselves in, sort of, according to the Post. Their chosen course took them to the police headquarters. Alexander uh, posted a video showing the suspects being surprised and arrested. So imagine their surprise when they turn the corner or jump the fence and they're they're in the pokey. Oops. Busted! They were surprised. So it's sad that these criminals don't plan ahead. And so many are accidentally and intentionally trying to get in jail. So they've already made – they're making a movie out of this. Out of what? As you teased, out of this story. They are? Yeah. Um, Man, Hollywood's moving fast these Hollywood's days. Hollywood's desperate. It is the third sequel to the movie Break-In. Oh, really? Um, but So, yeah, they, they've just started making it. So all they have is those really – you know how those – Trailers are really popular. They're only like, 15 seconds like the long. the initial trailer. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's like a teaser trailer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we've It's got, a pre-trailer. We've got one of those. Let's see what it's called. A lot of surprises. The sequel to Scared Straight to Jail. The sequel to 5 to 10, Break-In 2. The sequel to Break-In. This time, parking won't be validated. A lot of surprises. Coming this spring. That looks good. That's going to be a good movie. So a lot, meaning the parking lot? A lot, like the parking lot of surprises. The the parking lot is full of surprises. Mm. Parking will not be validated. Clank. That was good. Did you feel it, Terry? Like, Terry just wiped a tear. It it was beautiful. It was neat. It was beautiful. Um, Now, it has nothing to do with the 80s movie Break-In about breakdancing teenagers. No, that's Break-In... Apostrophe, not oh. break dash in. Wasn't there a seventies gotcha. movie called Break Away, where they were? It's a bicycling team. Oh, Breaking Away, Breaking Away, not that one either. Then there was a show Breaking Bad. Yeah, but that didn't. That, that show didn't do too well. That was different. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that kind of fizzled out. Flash in the pan. Flash in the meth pan. Right. Um, wow, that's going to be good. There's a lot of break-ins, breakouts, lots of breaks. Prison break, by the way, another one. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's good stuff. We got a lot to cover still. Holy cow! We got to come back. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the science 
behind the spirit. When you feel spiritual, when you feel connected spiritually to something that moves you toward God, do you know what happens to your brain when that when that's going on? Interesting research out of the University of Utah. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the best you can be. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, religious and spiritual experiences activate the brain reward circuits in much the same way as love, sex, gambling, drugs, and music. According to a report, researchers at the University of Utah School of Medicine and um, Dr. Jeff Anderson is joining us. He's a senior author of of the report and a neuroradiologist at the University of Utah. He says that we are just beginning to understand how the brain participates in and experiences um, the experience of spirituality. What goes on in the brain? What does it do to the brain? Is it is it as is it as effective? Is spirituality as effective as sugar, as as certain chemicals might be, um, as dopamine, and the impact that that has on the brain? All questions we want to ask to Dr. Anderson. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, so happy to have the chance to talk about our research. This is, I think, just as a person that believes spiritually in in. Uh, in a higher power, and I feel connected to that higher power. I've been dying to figure out physio- physiologically what's happening to me. How did, how did you and your research team even decide to get into this area? Well, this is something that I've wanted to study for as long as I've been a scientist. And my partners and colleagues feel the same way. So it was, it was really a case of we had the right group of people with complementary expertise and backgrounds and decided that we wanted to undertake this. I had a uh, one of my favorite guests um, that we that, that I have on the show talks she she uh, comes and talks about spirituality and the impact of of spirituality on our health on our lives. She's a Columbia professor and um, I, I've I've always been intrigued at because there are some healthy benefits to spirituality, but when we take a medical, a kind of a clinical approach to this, walk us through how you go about in a valid research method methodology. You go about studying what happens when we do so, when we're having a spiritual experience. Well, the first challenge is to be able to reproduce those types of feelings in a laboratory setting. And it wasn't clear to us when we started if we'd be able to do that. You know, there's um, the idea that people have that these are uh, powerful feelings that, you know, may not come that often. And and I think studying a, a Mormon or LDS population for us was, was really helpful in being able to find a group of individuals who had practiced and um, lots of focused training on identifying those feelings in themselves, and, and that, that seemed to make a difference for us. So you took a sample of LDS um, uh, faithful, I guess, that, and, and then you you gave them an experience, a spiritual experience, a lab experiment, and then while they were feeling the spirit, you tested what was happening in their brain through fMRI. That's right. So so our our whole process was done inside of an MRI scanner. 
<laughs> and inside of the scanner, we, we can show audiovisual stimuli with a projection screen um, and headphones. And we were able to uh, design a whole battery of, of tests that elicited spiritual feelings, including prayer, uh, audiovisual materials produced by the LDS Church, uh, spiritual quotations from LDS and, and Christian uh, leaders. Uh, and through this you know, hour-long uh, experience, we were able to pretty reliably uh, elicit those types of feelings. Hmm. Was it, um, and I guess you, you, you're not in a position yet to be able to say that this is the universal phenomenon. This doesn't happen with every religious group. This is, you just know that for Mormon practitioners, that saw these exper- these experiences, their brains, did, did they pretty much universally go to the same place in the brain? They did. You know, there was, there was uh, at least four different experiments that independently generated the same brain regions when we were looking at, at what they identified as peak spiritual feelings. And so we're pretty confident that we were able to find a, a reproducible brain network that is associated with these types of things. Holy cow, that is fantastic. So explain where they go. Where, When they're watching a, a moving video that makes them feel what they feel is the spirit, where do they go in their brain? What happens to the brain? Well, there's a number of reason, regions. Um, so the one that was probably the most striking to us was an area called the nucleus accumbens. And this is an area that, across a wide range of literature, is associated with pleasure or reward in the brain. Uh, but there were other regions that were also activated, um, an area uh, that processes focused attention um, called dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, an area in the medial prefrontal cortex that, in other contexts, is associated with uh, internal dialogue or narrative talking to yourself, hmm. thoughts, feelings, but also uh, moral reasoning, judgment. So, so there, there are a number of these regions that, that seem to activate together during these feelings that, that may contribute to the, the perception that people have in the brain of something that's tran- transcendental or, or, uh, or spiritually evocative. Did they, when they, when they would go there in their brain, does that then elicit a chemical reaction is that what they're feeling? Is chemistry? Well, you know that's a that's a pretty deep question, actually, because yeah. it turns out that that most neuroscientists believe that that brain activation is the substrate for our thoughts, our feelings, and so it's it's not that that there's a chemical that is really the the, the singular event. It's it's actually the brain activity itself hmm. that that is associated with these high-level emotional and, and cognitive experiences. But there are chemicals, yes. So in that area, the nucleus accumbens, there are receptors for dopamine, for oxytocin, for serotonin, for opioids. It's, a, it's some pretty high-level real estate in yeah. terms of these socially evocative neurotransmitters or chemicals. And it, and it I mean, can it become addictive? Well, that's... Uh, you know, that's an interesting question, too, because it, if we think about other types of processes that involve this region, um, like, for example, romantic love, it, it's not typical in society to talk about 
romantic love is addictive. Right, yet, no. But it's, at the same yeah. time, there are a lot of the same physiology. So we, we can um, have compulsions with respect to a romantic partner. We can have withdrawals. Uh, it, it really has more to do with how something impacts our life, whether it's adaptive or maladaptive, when we talk about something as addictive or not. But a lot of the brain physiology is the same, whether we're talking about you know, methamphetamines or gambling or or listening to music. Yeah. Does it, is this a, so that's an interesting thing you, you brought up that it's the outcome, the benefit itself is just the brain activity in those areas. It's not always a chemical reaction, but so when somebody is creating maybe a more spiritual mindset, they, they might just be creating a more spiritual brain pattern. Well, I, I think about it like this. You know, I, I think most people understand that when they're having some type of, of spiritual or religious experience, the brain is involved. I mean, that's right. Has to be. Um, and what is happening in that brain gives us some clues about understanding the context for those experiences. So, if somebody is having um, activation of a particular set of brain regions that we know from other types of contexts is associated with these powerfully motivating reward circuits. Well, that, that kind of gives us some clues as to how religious and spiritual experiences might uh, be able to set up and maintain religious belief. Hmm. So if you have uh, this, this motivating experience that, that you know, is a, a, a brain circuitry that we, that we know from other types of experiments, um, can profoundly influence behavior. Well, well, that's a that's a good roadmap for how we develop religious feelings and beliefs. Did you notice in your research um, were there certain things that were more likely to induce this intense spiritual feeling than other things? Were yeah, quotes we, we one did. or video it was images? So just take for example the audiovisual stimuli that that we showed. We, we actually were able to take that black box and open it up and, and look at, you know, what time points during the video were the most evocative, because we actually had subjects push a button hmm. uh, when they were feeling some type of peak spiritual feeling. And so by reconstructing what elicited those feelings, it turned out to be, first of all, that it was very accurate in terms of, of timing. So it, when they would push a button, we would see activation of the nucleus accumbens or, or brain hmm. reward center about one to three seconds before they push the button. Oh, wow. And when we, we looked at what scenes or types of stimuli elicited those feelings, well, there were some trends. So we noticed when there was a swell of the volume of, of music, for example, that would, that would be a trigger. We noticed that there were certain scenes in the videos, like especially uh, phrases like "I know," "I testify," "I I declare." Um, these kind of evocative pronouncements were associated with with them pushing the button. Um, pictures of Jesus and children. So, hmm. so there were there were there were some characteristic patterns. That is amazing. I mean, it really it it, it is. This is, and we're I guess just on the cutting edge of all of this, huh? That's right. You know, it's astonishing to me 
that religious experience is one of the most powerful influences of behavior for billions of people, and yet we know almost nothing about mm-hmm. what happens in the brain. You know, there, there are orders of magnitude, more studies on the sense of smell than, I mean, which is important, but, but the, <laughs> the extent to which we right. have not studied uh, religious and spiritual experience to me is amazing. And we probably don't have a lot of wars starting over smell. I mean, we probably do, you know, in a marriage <laughs> That's right. maybe. That's right. But not in a not in I mean, this is something that has moved in our societies and our world forever. Ow. Powerful. Let's take a break and come back, continue the discussion. So much to get into. Dr. Jeff Anderson is joining us and is walking us through his research on the power of the brain. And your relationship with spiritual things. When you are having a spiritual experience, your brain is going through a certain process, and it's pretty predictable what's going to be happening there. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us, Dr. Jeff Anderson uh, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. He is a researcher there as well as a a neuroradiologist at the university and has been, uh, I think, diving into just, to me, a fascinating subject. for, For eons, people have been feeling some spiritual connection to God, to some higher power, and, uh, you know, from the beginning of time, many world religions, of course, um, created because of these feelings, and yet we've hardly studied it. So Jeff Anderson and his crew at the University of Utah with other researchers, if I recall, uh, in the article from Harvard and others that have all been a part of this, uh, trying to figure out what happens in the brain when we go through a spiritual experience. And uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you again for being with us. Oh, so glad. This is, um, it's got to be, you know, fulfilling for you to be making this movement and starting to create this, this insight. What are, what are some of the things that you see or that stand out for you as far as what you're learning about spirituality and our brain? Well, one of the things that is of great interest to me is how do we develop religious beliefs? Why is it that somebody has a feeling or a view that they can they can hold to uh, so powerfully how, how do those arise and and it seems like from our research there's a, a mechanism by how those beliefs can be formed and maintained so you have some doctrinal idea or concept and when that's paired with social rewards things like music sacred music um, social rewarding uh, stimuli, that, that you can have an associative learning or a pair between reward and those doctrinal ideas. And over a process of time, those can come to be intrinsically rewarding. So just reading the scriptural passage or, or a quotation from a general authority can be associated itself with reward in the brain. Hmm. And, and do some just naturally 
do this? I mean, are, are some better in their prefrontal cortex area than others so they're more receptive to it? Is Does the chemistry that uh, work on some more than others? Very likely. You know, yeah. it, it, it seems as we've been talking to people, I, I've had many people that, that say, you know, they – they don't feel these experiences in the same way as is maybe described in their friends or neighbors. And it's possible that some of the variation from individual to individual in their spiritual feelings and, and uh, beliefs may have something to do with, for example, their oxytocin receptor in their brain. It may come down to genetics that, hmm. that actually influences how we feel or to the extent to which we feel spiritual feelings. Interesting too, because then it could be it could maybe it's a it's a genetic thing. Maybe family lines can are more adept at being able to get that sensation, which might keep them more in a religious position. That's very possible. Now, one thing we noticed in our data was that the particular brain regions that were evoked by spiritual feeling were shared across our participants, but there were also differences. Hmm. So one area of the brain, for example, that showed some differences from individual to individual is an area called the insula. And this, is a, this is a very complex brain region. It's associated with empathy, with um, social uh, function, and this region was more active in subjects who, in offline questionnaires, reported different moral values. So it's possible that that the particular brain regions and the types of responses that someone has can actually shape the, the values we have, whether we value in-group loyalty more mm. or purity or sanctity or, or, or how we prioritize these, these values. So your physiology might have you create a favorite uh, value system. It might, you might have a more favored value system. Yeah, they're, they're, they're correlated. Correlated, right. Yeah. Man, is, did, did you sense – and I, I, I remember reading somewhere um, that, that is this the same spirituality? So if we took um, a, a Buddhist monk and put them in the same MRI and gave them similar imagery, would they be similarly moved? Well, it's a little more problematic when we talk about contemplative – or, or Eastern spiritual practices, but I would be astonished if there weren't widely shared brain pathways hmm. that were inactive a- across different faith traditions and, and cultural and religious groups. I, I would also be very surprised if these same brain uh, circuits aren't involved in nationalism or patriotism, hmm. There, there, there's so much similarity in how people describe these experiences, the language they use, um, the types of behaviors they, they uh, spawn. I, I, I think that, that there are, there's probably going to be a shared library of neural circuits. And what may be the most interesting are the differences. So it, it may be possible that, that similar types of feelings are active for both adaptive and, and maladaptive religious experiences. So if you have someone contemplating religious violence, it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to have you know, similar activation of the reward network, but maybe there are differences in the other brain regions that are activated or, or what the net perception is. 
and that would be incredibly important to study. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's fascinating because I think for years we would we would try to you know take the brain of an Albert Einstein once he had passed away and and see what was different about Einstein's brain or someone you know some of these incredible people and yet we we probably didn't see much difference but now we're seeing an actual we're seeing what makes the difference is this actual pathway that's created well that's also been the process in religious neuroscience so most of the studies have have studied exceptional individuals so carmelite nuns mm. um, uh, tibetan or buddhist monks and there hasn't been a lot of research studying you know, the rank and file, you know, the millions or billions of people who have spiritual feelings and experiences but, but aren't necessarily, you know, religious experts that have um, about, you know, where that is their job or their, their career vocation. Um, and, and I think that's a, a, a defect in our, in our literature. We need to study the experiences that, that people have. Is it is it contagious? Um, I know that we learned with I think it was with rhesus monkeys that um, that we we kind of have an empathic sensor where if I see someone suffering, I I go to my suffering part of my brain while watching them suffer. If I if I see if I'm experiencing or sharing a story that's spiritual in nature, and I'm in that part of my brain, does it help me facilitate it with others? Well, there's an ongoing debate in in the field of religious studies about the extent to which religion is pro-social, meaning does it engender more cooperation, more uh, uh, charitable giving, uh, and so forth. And, and some of the controversy has been about the extent to which those pro-social tendencies engendered by religion are primarily to the in-group, or whether they mm. generalize to the out-group. And um, I, I think this is a, a tool that will allow us to study those kinds of questions. For example, if we were to look at a, a, a wide section of individuals and then, and then look at other metrics of, of pro-sociality, you could probably tease out what aspects of, of our spiritual feelings in the brain may engender a more pro-social religious perspective. Hmm. That is fascinating. It's true, too, right? Because... Many times you might be excluding others from your religious circle, your spiritual circle. Well, these same circuits in, in other contexts can be associated with ethnocentrism, for, for example, really? oxytocin physiology. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's an interesting interaction between Absolutely. those ideas. And I guess, too, this might lead us down a road of understanding, is there a difference between religiosity and spirituality? Yes. Is this just yes. a practice of religious, uh, you know? We actually found that, that the spiritual uh, feelings we were able to measure were correlated with religiosity, so we, we measured that independently. Did you? Well. Okay, wow. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, another uh, aspect of that is these, these feelings, um, do they compete? Do they compete for, for reward drive with other types of rewarding experiences. Hmm. One of the things that we, we uh, found interesting was that the, the types of circuits that we are seeing activated are similar between, you know, methamphetamines, between romantic love, uh, sex, uh, and it, 
it, it is something that is pervasive across religious cultures that there are many taboos or, or, or restrictions about many of these other reward-inducing behaviors, um, you know, gambling, drug use. Hmm. And it's possible that, to some extent, that some of those taboos may have arisen because of competition yeah. for reward centers with religious and spiritual experience. Interesting. And that might be, too, why people go to religion to bring people out of the dark gambling habit or addiction or the uh, pornography. We, we turn to, a, to this pattern to bring them out. To, it, we're, or I guess we're just feeding it another drug. In a sense. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Interesting. Powerful stuff. Well, we'll have to have you back, Jeff. This is, I think, fascinating. Keep up your research, and we will, uh, for sure, catch you on your next uh, great um, discovery. Jeff Anderson, again, from the University of Utah. Dr. Jeff Anderson. By the way, an MD, PhD, for heaven's sakes. Come on. He just got so much. It's amazing. Learning about spirituality, folks. How cool. It's in you. It's in all of us to, uh, to ignite those circuits. We'll take a break, come back. Got an interesting discussion up next with Caitlin Thomas about cars, believe it or not. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a new year often uh, comes with the the need of new purchases, right? Maybe a new car, a new home, new clothes, new gym passes. And uh, I'm in the I'm in search of a car, and it started a conversation with Caitlin and I about uh, what car to choose. I personally would love to choose a Volkswagen, like Bug. I don't I don't think they call it a Bug anymore. Beetle. I think they call it a Beetle. I'd love a Mini Coupe. You want a Mini Coupe? I love Mini Coopers. And I think a Mini Coupe, it just seems too many. But I had a Volkswagen Bug growing up in high school, and I want another one. But then my kids tell me, Dad, that's a girl car. Yeah. So you're here to help us understand our Wait. personality and our automobile. Wait a minute. So yeah. is the Mini Coupe a girl car? Kind of. No. I don't know. No. But or a man in midlife crisis. I don't think anyone's really put gender on cars. I think we kind of did that ourselves. I think it's because so many girls buy Volkswagen Bugs and then they put flowers in the cup holder and those little eyelash things on the front well, but light. They, so, let's be real. You know? The Volkswagen Bug was sold with a flower cup holder. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So their purpose was to But the older ones, like the more women. retro ones, yeah. don't look quite so girly, no. I don't think. I love, I love the bug. old ones. Yeah, they're hot. But I mean, according to this article that I found, which there were a lot that pulled up, but some of them were very specific to men, some were specific to women. This one just seemed pretty gender neutral. Okay. Having a small car like a Prius or Honda Civic or like a smart car or bug, you know, yeah. something like that. Pretty much just means that small car drivers are more pro-environmental and prefer higher density neighborhoods than drivers of other types of cars. They care about is that they true? care about the earth. So if you live in a big city, it's simply easier. Budget. It's simply easier to park a small car. True. Right. Totally true. It's just easier to park. It's just more convenient. But if you're in New York, it's like and five thousand dollars. It's more fuel efficient. Totally. You know what I'm saying? So like maybe it's less that you're like girly and more that you're just concerned about. Parking convenience and gas prices. Yeah, but okay. What if I don't live in a big urban city? 
and I don't have a parking problem because I have a garage stall just at my house for my car. Yeah, but I mean, are you concerned about gas? Because not really, man or not, like giant trucks take a lot of gas. They do, and they and there's a yeah, there's a, and but the guy you got to have your truck because well, it says that you're a man. Yeah, in this study, pickup drivers don't like high density living situations and are more likely to be dissatisfied with their lives. Yeah, see, they would be living in the they'd be living out in the yeah. outskirts they, of. Town. They tend to be workaholics. Have lower education and be full-time employees. Have service-related jobs and be middle income. Yep. So what having about, a truck could say that about you. I don't know if that's true. This is just based on a no. study. Yeah, so what about a, a Maserati? Because I'm, I'm probably going to buy a Maserati. Like a sports car? Mm-hmm. Um, those who are adventure seekers no, drive sure. sports cars. They're not calm and are more likely than average to have a college degree. There you go. Which would make sense because they have more money to buy a really nice car. Yeah. Surprisingly, based on the cost of most sports cars, they were more likely to have lower incomes. Mm. So midlife crisis. Probably you know? me, yeah, totally. Some of these may fall into the category of emulator or younger, financially unstable, low self-esteem people who buy flashy cars. Nailed it. Actually, Is that you? I can't afford <laughs> I, can, I have I have to buy a car that can fit I, about five people. Yeah, I can't afford. Also, what color of bug do you want? Because depending on Red. the color. Red. Someone who is full of energy and pizzazz. I yeah. like that word. Yeah, pizzazz, for you, man. totally. You want a red Mini Cooper? I'm all about pizzazz. So you got, you two have a lot of pizzazz. My mom almost called me Zazz. I drive a blue Jetta, so I'm concerned about parking and the environment, and I'm very introspective, reflective, and cautious. I don't see that. But I also have a little pizzazz. So, but because it's a Jetta. It's a Jetta. So one day I, I used to have a Passat. It was my favorite car of all time. A Passat. And um, I got in it with some friends, and they're like, hey, nice Passat. And I'm like, you know what? I just said as a joke, you know what? The ladies love this car. I said that. And we drove, parked at a store, and when we got out, we were going to lunch. When we got out, uh, a car full of another, a Jetta actually pulled up, full of a bunch of lovely ladies. And they're screaming, sweet car, man. Sweet car. (laughs) And all the guys were like. You were serious. The ladies love your car. I'm like, yeah. Well, maybe it's because it says mid-sized cars, like smaller cars that aren't quite as sporty. Yeah, like Passat, mine's going to be a mid-sized. Or tend to be owned by females. So maybe oh, if you're really? a man and you drive it, like females are attracted to you because apparently females are attracted to that kind of car. Well, why? Mm. I thought it was more just. I thought it. Would, don't ruin it. I thought they were just attracted to the driver. Well, probably not. My <laughs> my Toyota Solara is was owned by like an 80 year old woman. But yep. when, when I bought it, my wife said she thought it looked sexy. Oh. Really? There you go. Wow. That's or maybe it was me in yeah. the car. That was I think it. that was it. Well, I mean, yeah. she married you, so there must have been something about you that she liked. <laughs> it's so large. You're did it smell like a? Did it, did it smell, smell like, like an eighty-year-old woman? Like with perfume it's, and no, it smelled perfect. It smells. It's like, a good-looking car. You know, the combination of like baby powder and perfume. That's kind of old. Maybe older people smell like. So love um, you, grandma. Give me, give me one more. Okay, what about like a little bit larger than a midsize? Like an SUV? No, that's too big. Or, but we we used to we have like an a SUV. luxury car, like yeah, a Cadillac. Maybe, uh, Those are dry. A lux- Nissan Pathfinder. That's kind of a good uh, know, hybrid. But if you drive one got... of those cars, you're a status seeker. Really? They are more apt to driving long distances. Men are older re- or retired people are more likely to drive luxury cars. In particular, luxury car drivers are overrepresented among highly educated and higher income people. So that's probably what I have this to buy. This is funny. It's got to be as big as a boat. I can't buy a sports car. I've got a family. I don't want a Suburban. We've had that cost of yeah. fortune. You don't want I don't want a SUV. Prius. I want a Tesla. 
What does that say about me? High tech. Like a high tech. Oh, they. And have I like that. to go fast. Ludicrous speed. Yeah, that just means you're a attention seeker. Yep. There we go. You're going through a midlife crisis, maybe. Been there. Had about four of them. So this is the fifth. Yeah. This is what we call the grand finale. <laughs> one, one for each mom, child. I just want you to you listen. To that. Six. My mom bought Matt Townsend's book, but I want you to know, mom, he's going through another midlife crisis. I wouldn't trust him. You should have your mom bring it. Shout out. You bring it back in. I'll, I'll sign it. I want to. I'll write her a little note on oh. it. <laughs> Okay. I'll autograph that. Did you hear that, Mom? The ladies love authors, too, by the way. Oh, you have no idea. No idea. Well, thank you, Caitlin. That was a great uh, little topic. I have to buy a car within two weeks, my son tells me. Avoid the Tesla. I mean, get the Tesla or get the bug. They say two very different things, so you decide what you wanted to say about you. Jeez. It's a lot of work. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live longer and lead healthier lives. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Happy days. It's Tuesday, and um, if you're keeping score, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions is is up against the Judiciary Committee. <laughs> I think he's got a slight lead, but he has taken a few hits. No, right now, Donald Trump, all of his uh, cabinet members, one by one, they start going through their their hearings with uh, certain committees on the Hill and uh, in the Senate, and all of a sudden, this is where it gets real. The threats that, uh, that people are going to bring Trump's cabinet down. Well, it starts today with but, Jeff Sessions. But they can't. They don't have the votes. No, no, but okay. they can threaten it. Well, what are they going to do? So if they if they reject this person, does that person or does uh, Donald Trump then just nominate somebody else? Yeah. Okay. And I, I bet a lot of people would just assume that that next person would be better. But would they? That's the question. Yeah, don't you typically present the best person first? first you think so, absolutely. Well, and Jeff Sessions is interesting because he's been a senator for years. They all know him. Yeah, they they thanked him for his service before it started. Is that how they started? Well, the Republican who's the chairman of the committee did. This is just fun. Well, (laughs) as I I was talking with Jeff in the break, it it kind of feels like grandstanding sometimes. Oh, it does. People are making campaign videos as they're asking Mm -hmm. questions. You're like, come on. Well, and so you know that – and because there's two sides to the issue. One side has all the ugly questions. The other side is – Oh, yeah. Isn't it true that you once found a puppy in the road? Aren't you the greatest person on the planet? Yeah. Wonderful. We thank you for your service. Tell us about the puppy that you saved walking home from church. If you remember the uh, Hillary Clinton hearings, uh, oh, the, yeah. the Democrats are always like, this is a sham. And then Republicans would go on for 20 minutes about all these questions. And this is a sham. Yeah. <sighs> Whatever. That's why it's better today. If you don't want to celebrate the hearings, instead, just celebrate House Plant Appreciation Day. Nice. Do you have a specific houseplant in mind? Why not all of them? The fly uh, trap? No. Those uh, things are me. I always had the experience as a child where my mom would say, okay, gather up all the houseplants. And you bring them out to the kitchen table, and then she'd water all the plants, oh. and then we'd put them all back. 
That's the, cool. That's I a good she memory. gathered them together for like a family discussion. No, it was once a week. Family discussion? It felt like it was always me <laughs> and somehow yeah, you're such like, a burden. Um, okay, it's not you, it's me. We, we're going to need to let one of you go. Pause Mario. Go take <laughs> care of this. Ugh. I always, uh, my mom had plants, but my dad was always kind of a cactus guy. At his office, at his apartment, it seemed like he had uh, he had a lot of cacti. So I had a cactus, but it uh, pricked me, so I had to put it down. Oh, there's nothing harder than the day you got to get you know put the cactus down, or like when when it suffers an injury, and you got to dismember. Oh, they're part u- of it. they're useless after that. You just got to shoot them with a shotgun. Oh boy, that's violent. <laughs> That is violent. We will be talking about being shot with something today. How about a nail gun? Mm. We've got a crazy story about a construction worker lucky to be alive. Lucky to get back to his houseplant today because he took a nail to the head. He has a houseplant. Well, of course he did. Well, he does now. He's been in the hospital. Do you just get houseplants when you go there? What do you get a guy that had a nail gun shoot a nail into his head? A hammer? No. No? Would that be insensitive? That's totally insensitive. <laughs> you just get him a house plan. So we'll be talking about that very lucky man in a few moments, as well as a, a construction worker who, you know, got very proactive and stopped a drunk driver oh, with wow. his backhoe. <laughs> and then a drunk driver who wasn't actually drunk, yeah, but still was charged with a DUI. And and should you be able – can you be intoxicated on other chemicals other than alcohol or uh, drugs? Hmm. Could you be – should you be charged with DUI if you had too much caffeine? Huh. Hmm. If so, I have a lot of friends. If you're really awake, that are like, really amped up. If you got the shakes. <laughs> That's part of the problem. But before we get to that, and by the way, of course, uh, Julie Nelson will be joining us, the bomb mom, we call her, and she will be sharing um, uh, the importance of family stories with us. She's going to talk about how to share family stories. It's pretty cool. You build a, you build a real kind of identity for your family. Mm. All that ahead, but first to the family uh, story building expert, wow. Terry South. Thank you, Matt. With the headlines. Uh, as we've been talking about, Senator Jeff Sessions is under the interrogation lamp as the uh, members of this committee. Senator Patrick Leahy is going after him right now, so we'll see what he says. Uh, so far, they've talked about uh, his opening statement. He t- uh, Jeff Sessions talked about the accusations that he has uh, uh, been unfair to African Americans in his previous uh, uh, job in uh, I think it was Alabama as a uh, yeah. attorney's general. Yeah, it was. And uh, the the uh, what the circumstances that kept him from taking a federal judgeship in 1986 when this committee decided that he uh, actions he that he did he wasn't he wasn't worthy worthy of the the appointment. Um, he has said that if the uh, the president wants to do something illegal, he will then. Uh, conference with the president to help him achieve his goals uh, in a legal way. Okay. So you know, if the president comes at comes with something that isn't going to work, we're going to make it see if we can achieve his goals while staying within the bounds of the law. Well, because one of the rules is he's not the president's attorney, right? He's right. the country's attorney, but because the president has a White House counsel, yes, it shouldn't. They so shouldn't be talking that. about. He, he also says that he'd recuse himself from any investigation of Hillary Clinton. If he's confirmed attorney general. Oh, that's great. Hey, but I thought when the president does something, it's not illegal, according to Richard Nixon. Yeah. It just depends. 
Don't believe everything a politician says. So those are some of the things I've been following a live blog. That's good. People are live blogging. I didn't know you were that into the sessions. I'm I'm kind of sitting in a room and I have to listen to Yeah, you're bored. I understand. Um, President-elect Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has been named senior advisor to the president. Senior transition officials reported in NBC News on Monday. Kushner played a large role in devising Trump's presidential campaign, recently stepped back from his family's multi-million dollar real estate business amid speculation that he would take on a formal role in the uh, new administration. Now, there was a Um, nepotism law, I thought. There's some – the nepotism law talks about sons, daughters, I think wives, and it mentions son-in-laws. So, so the Trump's question is going how, against this. How do you get around it? The uh, in order to scare, he's let's say such an appointment could run afoul of federal anti nepotism laws. Kushner has reportedly been working with counsel on eliminating potential conflicts of interest. Hmm. Uh, in order to skirt such nepotism law, Kushner would have to go without pay in his White House job. The Trump transition team confirmed to Real Clear Politics that he would not be paid for his work at the White House. It was also announced that he would transfer the ownership of the website he owns, The Observer, which is a, used to be a newspaper and now it's a news website. He's transferring that into a family trust so he won't have any conflicts that way either. Wow. Okay. So they're making it's some steps. It's all good. It's not even a job. It's just he'll be Advising. hanging around the right. White House for free. The confirmation hearing for Betsy DeVoice, the billionaire proponent of taxpayer fund vouchers for private and religious schools chosen by Donald Trump to as his education secretary nominee, has been postponed. Why? The Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, uh, the chairman of that, uh, yeah, the chairman, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and high-ranking member Patty Murray of Washington uh, said in a statement Monday saying the hearing originally set to take place Wednesday morning has been rescheduled for the 17th. So I believe that's a week away. Uh, the time change came at the request of the Senate leadership to accommodate the Senate schedule. The Office of Government Ethics has not completed its, its review of her and her financial holdings and any potential conflicts of interest and was a concern for Democrats. So this is the downside of being a billionaire. You have all these things they have to go through. Her husband is the heir to the Amway fortune. Holy cow. $5.1 billion they think they're, they're worth. At least that's the yeah. total Amway and they have some piece of it. So they have to go through all the financial yeah. dealings and stocks and all that stuff to see where they stand. And they're not done yet, so they have to postpone until they're ready to go okay. with that. that makes sense. Two Florida law enforcement officers were killed Monday during a manhunt for a murder suspect who has been on the run since he was accused of fatally shooting a pregnant mother last week. Orlando Police Master Sergeant Deborah Clayton, 42, was shot by the suspect after she responded to a sighting of him outside a Walmart store Monday. Uh, this is from a police chief, John Mina, he's, as he's talking to reporters. Clayton returned fire. Authorities don't believe the uh, assail- or the, the criminal was struck. Orange County Sheriff's Deputy Norman Lewis, an 11-year veteran, was killed in a crash as authorities gave pursuit of the purported criminal. Chief Mina said that the somber news conference that Lloyd would face charges, that's the criminal, of uh, first-degree murder of a law enforcement officer. We're, we're going to bring this dirtbag to justice, he Whoa. said, and he's going to jail. Woo! Dirtbag. Dirtbag. And finally, one of the world's biggest sporting events, the World Cup, has expanded to 48 nations beginning in 2026. One of the first moves by the uh, by FIFA, the governing body, since the departure of disgraced former president Sepp Blatter, if you remember him. Oh, yeah. Uh, FIFA officials said the expansion from 36 to 48 will secure up more than $1 billion in revenue. Boy. The number of matches played will rise to from eighty from 64 to 80 matches, but no team will play more than seven matches, and the tournament will be completed over the same period of time. Oh, that is the coolest. That really is probably the coolest event globally. And I still, think, yeah, that's like Olympic worthy. Yes. 
I still remember that bladder, that whole bladder problem. Do you remember? Yeah. You've, you've had a set bladder. I mean, it's just just a little, all you need is a little penicillin. Wow. Nice. Gets rid of it. <laughs> was Sep the guy in charge that was... Taking money. Indicted for being so corrupt. Yes, he was corrupt. There was a Florida Did, but businessman I thought he that... just kind of walked away and nothing happened to him. Hmm. We'll see. Okay. Oh, is he still there? No, no. He's oh. he's gone. But, but I, I don't know if like the legality oh. of it, all this stuff. But if you remember, the FBI is kind of the ones that uh, spearheaded this. They went into the FIFA office in Switzerland yeah. and arrested people. And yeah, Bye. great stuff. Great, great stories. stuff. Hey, uh, let's segue from SEP to um, a very a very lucky man hmm. in Stillwater, Minnesota, home builder. Missed death by just millimeters after a nail from a nail gun ricocheted and sent a spike right into his head. Hmm. You've, so, yeah, I've seen the, like yeah. X-rays of these. Oh, so types this of must things. be the actual. This wasn't like a. This wasn't like a high-powered staple gun. This was no. shooting a nail. So like a spike. Yeah. Wow. It ricocheted. Nick Thompson is bandaged and has a ton of pain, but given what he survived, he knows he's one lucky guy. This was uh, one of the most freak accidents, things that could have happened. He said, I didn't die. It's all good. I don't know what else to say other than that. His friend, um, Frankie Peterson, they were framing a closet when something went horribly wrong. Thompson had a pneumatic nail gun above his head. He figures he hit a a nail that was already in the wood. And when the gun Mm. kicked back right uh, into his face, which drove uh, the next nail two inches deep into his skull. Mm. Ouch. Can you imagine that? No, not really. I didn't even know I had a nail in my eye until we got to the hospital and they found it inches deep into his skull. Is the part included about how he wanted a photo? Does he? What does he say? Oh, yeah. Is that in the story? Yeah. I didn't even know I had the nail in my eye until we got to the hospital, and then sitting in a chair, I was like, "Hey, take a picture. Take a picture." I moved my hand. I still didn't think there was a nail in my eye at all. Yeah. In his eye. I can't see it. Well, it was in the eye. It's hard to see stuff in your and, eye. And Jeff brought up. There's really only two words to explain this experience, right, Jeff? Tired of the same old boring game shows? This is more is that your words. final answer? $350,000. No Open the case. Then you're sure to love Nailed It. <laughs> the new BGC game show that makes contestants complete random challenges yeah. with a nail gun in their trousers. <laughs> like kicking a field goal. <laughs> Nailed it! Or dancing to YMCA dressed up as the sailor from the village beach. <laughs> Nailed it! Or knitting a cap. Nailed it! Viewers love it. I suffer from depression, so this show's kind of like the highlight of my day. And the contestants seem to have a good time, too. Uh, At first, I wasn't a fan of all the nails, but after the 50th or 60th nail, you can't feel it as much. Witness this novice gymnast do a whip, followed by a double back, into a round-off handspring, and finishing up with a layout back. Nailed it! Nailed it! Coming this spring to BGC. It's a movie. It's a TV series, I mean. A show. A game show. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it! This guy's lucky to be alive, A. Doesn't know... I mean, he wants the guy to take a picture of the nail that went through his eye. So he was in good spirits. (laughs) Right? He had a positive outlook, so to speak. Nailed it. That's crazy. I feel bad for the man. I really do. That's horrible. 
Well, we wish him the best of luck. At least he'll have a series he can watch on TV now. Nailed it. I can relate to those people. That's what he'll say. That's right. That could have happened to me. He really is like, I'm lucky to be alive. And you are. That's cray cray. Okay. um, We've got uh, so much to do. We'll come back. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, we call her, the child whisperer. She's going to help us understand the power of sharing family stories. Also, uh, later in the show, we'll be talking to our good friends uh, from BYU Sports Radio and uh, Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, we will also get to the story about um, how you could be charged with a DUI for caffeine if you're not careful. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in the studio, the bomb mom, we call her. Julie K. Nelson. It sounds like I just left a path of destruction behind me. No, but it, it was good. you're a good bomb. You you know how to come in. <laughs> that didn't sound good. And blow it up with our kids. You're the child. We call you the, the child whisperer. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you know how to talk to them, little rascals. Mm-hmm. Guide them, guide them towards doing good. That's right. You also are an author, and uh, you are a professor at Utah Valley University, teaching marriage, family, and human development, where you teach applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills. That's pretty cool. And a great website, a spoonful of parenting dot com, mm-hmm. where they can get all of your good stuff. Yeah. So. You wanted to talk about family stories. Yeah, it's a new year, and um, there's an initiative that I read about on a family history website um, called Family Search, and they have an initiative. Uh, it's called it's hashtag 52. And so for the 52 weeks of this year, of 2017, they have a question every week for to kind of prompt you to either write in your journal and journal about that to mm. create your own family narrative and your own personal history or to interview someone else. Yeah. And I've been through that process um, – I've interviewed my father-in-law um, years ago about his whole life and then create a book about that. Cool. And then I'm just uh, finishing my aunt right now. It's taking me a couple of years. But it's interesting to me, like people who don't know what to do and how to do it, these questions will help prompt you yeah. on what to ask. You can either do it chronologically. You'll start with the day you're born and then just walk, talk me through your whole life. Or these are kind of some prompts. Yeah, there's, there's – is it a book? Is it a – is, where do they get the prompt questions? Um, they go on Family Search and just do hashtag fifty two, and they'll and they get, they have a question every week. And I just I pulled up, I just pulled them up. They actually have them under categories like love and friendship, goals and achievement, home and hearth, um, events and milestones, travel and vacation. So you can do it that way. Group it's it so by powerful. topic. Uh huh. And you could record it. And then transcribe it later, yeah. and that becomes a book. Yeah, and I have both. So I have the audiovisual of all of the interviews, and then I have also the text that so I've made great. Into, into a book. So it's been kind of cool. What's the value of the narrative? It seems like there's value connecting you know, my, me, my children, to their ancestors. That seems powerful. Then they're not – they're just not, you know, a leaf flying around in the wind. Yeah, exactly. I like that. That's a good, good way to put it. And with the research behind it, we show that um, it started with um, a lot of corporations. How do we build team unity, you know, yeah. and productivity and stuff? And they find that some of these techniques of knowing the history um, and the purpose, the mission statement, so mm-hmm. to speak, behind the, you know, the military finds it that when the, those who are um, inducted into the military, that they're teaching recruits about the history of their service 
increases their camaraderie and the ability to bond closely with you. They have a purpose of why am I defending my country? What is the Air Force or the Marines or whatever? We know we belong to the Marines. There's a kind of a power and honor in that. And if you create that same in your either your corporation or even in your family in the small unit, then we find that um, they function better. And there's uh, if you develop these strong family narratives. Yeah. Um, like you're mentioning, we yeah. are we are Townsend. Yeah, we we have a and because I used to do this, I used to go into companies and and do what we call a future search, where we would identify the past where we've been, and we get everyone talking for about four hours about where we've been, where are we, and where do we want to go, mm-hmm. and that creates this kind of shared narrative now, mm-hmm. and then. You use the future to figure out what we need to be prepared for, what we need to change. So I use, I do it with my family where I like to – and it's amazing. I did it last night. When I tell them a story about me as a child, everyone stops in my family and they all listen to the story. I mean then they'll quickly go back to whatever they were doing. But it matters. And I tell them about their grandparents and their great-grandparents and this is who you are. This is who you are. And then when they start messing up. I'm like, we don't do that. We're Townsends. We don't – we Townsends don't do that. Right. And we, we now have a culture of what we are as a family. And then every night we, we have a little family time, a little prayer, a scripture, and we try to unite around that idea. That's powerful. It's pretty powerful cool. Powerful stuff. And it's really cool. what you're doing is you create the foundation of where we've been, and then you're all going in the same direction. Yeah. And those who have passed before us, you know, we have like a lot of, of cultures who they have a big they place a lot of emphasis on our ancestry. Mm-hmm. We honor our ancestors. You would never disrespect, and there's a lot of, of that going on. And we need to have that in our own families, so we all are headed in the same direction. Love that. Um, and then we belong because one of the um, strongest needs of humans is the sense of belongingness. Right. And if you belong to that narrative, and you know where you they what sacrifices. They've made. You wouldn't want to dishonor them, and you'd want to keep carrying that ball forward, mm-hmm. so to speak. Well, and if you don't, these kids that don't know where they are or where they belong, then that's why a gang would be attractive, or that's why mm-hmm. you know a, being just an athlete is attractive because now you know where you belong and what you what you can do. Problem is, you're not always going to be an athlete. And gangs aren't the healthiest Yeah. Cultures. What happens when you break your leg and you can't right. be part of the team anymore? Then you feel like, oh, well, who am I anymore? Yeah. You're still and, of a course, gangs family. are never a good idea. But, yeah, right. that, you, absolutely. I totally agree. Cool. The um, research based on uh, Marshall Duke from Emory University um, says that one uh, the ones who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they're facing challenges, he really? says. So they created this research based on the do you know questions scale that asked 20 questions like do you know where your – they'd ask kids, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Hmm. Um, do you know an illness or something terrible that happened to your family? Do you know the story of your birth? And then he'd find out who knew the most on this scale. Um, I, since I've known about this research years ago – we start a new tradition in our family. We tied into a tradition of the Easter egg hunt. Oh, yeah. So after we do the Easter egg hunt, right, they'll go find their candy. And then I have the big kahuna, right? Either it's the big rabbit or this special basket yeah. with all the cool stuff. And then we have a 20 questions. What do you know about your family? And so we come up with these random questions just, just you know. And that, whoever knows it wins the out big. Out of the 20, they get, yeah, we do this every year now. Oh, and great. they look forward to it because they get the big chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a fun tradition. That's smart. And so we, have, we know every year there are different questions. And so it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but Duke and, and his associates asked those questions to four dozen families in the summer of 2001. And think about what happened this, after that. 
the summer of 2001. They taped several of their dinner table conversations. Then they compared the children's result to a battery of psychological tests the children had taken and reached an overwhelming conclusion. The more children knew about their family history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher self-esteem, and the more successfully they believed their families functioned. Oh, that's cool. Um, so these do-you-know scales turned out to be the best single predictor of their emotional health and happiness. Man. He was blown away. And then the thing that happened was right after that in September, you know what happened. 9-11. That's right. And he didn't know that was going to happen. He went back to those same families, and the ones that knew more about their families proved to be more resilient and they knew that they could moderate the effects, the effects of stress of that event on their Interesting. lives. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there's kind of um, – in order to know a lot about your family, you have to talk a lot. It takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes – so part of the benefits of this is that you are spending more time together – discussing something important. And so just the mere fact you're together. And a lot of times we don't know what to talk about as parents. So we're always about the same. How was your school? Have you done your homework? It's the same thing. But now if you could get a bunch of other questions you could ask, it'd be powerful. Yeah. And there's even books that say table time, table time conversations or dinner conversations. Yeah. You just pull it out of, you know, kind of like this, the popsicle sticks out of the jar where you just pull it out and say, okay, today you read it off the popsicle stick or slips idea. of paper. Yeah. Just so you can start creating those moments of connection and helping them, helping to know you belong to something. And the stories become part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And now I know that I, I have this, this place in the world. Well, and think about how many stories you know that maybe your sisters don't know about your parents and aunts and uncles. And so these stories will end up being lost yeah. if we don't like get on organizing them. Yeah, We've and, got to figure out and keep them and archive them. Yeah, and then having the kids create their own narratives. It's not just about grandma and grandpa, right. but about what was your best and worst part of your day. They're creating their own personal narrative yeah. that their life mattered today. And even if you can encourage them to start maybe writing these things down themselves, mm-hmm. and then they create their own you know journal type thing. Well, how cool if a grandpa could help a grandchild see that he went through that very same thing you're going through. And let me just tell you my story because yeah. it might help you with your story. Right. Right. And then and then help. I mean, the cool thing about the story or the narrative idea is stories can be written and rewritten and changed and you can reiterate. And there's stories aren't they don't have to be fixed. Mm-hmm. They yeah. can change. They call them. They have the narratives take one of three shapes. One is ascending. Me, I just remind me what you just said. So he could say, son, when I came to this country, I had five dollars in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Look what I've built, you know, yeah, that point. kind of thing. Um, or there's descending like we used to have it all and then we lost it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's like, oh, wow. Well, look what they did. Yeah. Then they came back again. And that's called the oscillating family narrative of dear. Let me tell you, we had ups and downs in our family. We built a family business. Your grandfather was a pillar in the community. Your mother was one on the hospital board. We also had setbacks. You had an uncle who once was arrested. We had a house burned down. Your father lost his job. But no matter what, we stuck together and look where we've come. So when that child has a challenge in their life, they're like, hey, I'm part of this family that bounces back. They did it. I can do it too. So good. So resilient. So good. And that is the key to resiliency. And uh, let's take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion with Julie Nelson. Go check out her website, aspoonfulofparenting.com. And her two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power Power, and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. Julie K. Nelson, The Child Whisperer, will be up again next. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Oh, boy, oh. The bomb mom's in town. 
Julie K. Nelson joins us. Oh, my goodness. She is the, the mom that can connect and, and help you build a healthier, happier family life. And today she's helping us understand the power of our family's history, our family stories, and how we can create um, really a connection of of all these generations. Link them together. Yeah. Um, Dr. Duke said that children who have the most self-confidence have what he calls a strong intergenerational self. They know they belong to something bigger than themselves. It's not just about me. It's That's about cool. carrying my ancestors along with me on my journey towards life. Yeah. And it – I mean what a great gift to give somebody is a connection to, to, to know where they fit in the past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. And the future is totally up to them to create for themselves. But their past is fixed and uh, their present, they get to do something right now. Um, we saw this, the value of these questions. My mother-in-law had Alzheimer's so for like 10 years. So we – my wife would go record. Take a, She had a book that had all these questions. We would sit down and she would just record her and let her just tell all the stories and answer. And the stories were amazing. And a lot of them some had heard and some hadn't. But – to have her voice recorded is one thing. Um, I also had uh, my father-in-law videotaped his brother and just asked him to tell about his life and stuff. And recently, I mean, within like two or three months after the recording, he died in a plane crash. Oh, wow. So everyone always goes back to that yeah. recorded. So there's a benefit to capturing these stories, uh, not just, I think, for those that are leaving and that might die, but those that are here and need some support. Absolutely. You know, I've had um, – like I make an assignment for one of my university, university classes where they go and they interview their parents and ask questions like these things about their childhood and raising them and stuff, what stinkers they were. And then yeah. they appreciate what their parents did maybe for the first time <laughs> in their lives. Yes. But one of them, he was um, – he had an elderly mother and she was in a rest home and he went and interviewed her and did the paper. And she died that semester Oh, unexpectedly. I mean, she was elderly, but um, he said at the funeral, he passed out copies of this and it was the only thing that they all had about her life and how valuable that was to them. And I've had students who've gone um, to extremes to interview their parents. Extremes. And what I mean is like one went to the state prison through the glass, you know, through on the phone and talked to their parent. And that took some courage because they didn't necessarily have a relationship with their parent mm-hmm. and they weren't proud of their parent. And there are other students who have – their parents are kind of scoundrels yeah. and there's not a lot to be proud of in that family tree. But just the fact of sitting down and interviewing them helps to understand why your parents did what they did. Right. And to kind of move past the whole idea of you should have been and kind of realize that they did the best they knew. Yeah. And now it's time for me to carry on and do better. And that might help you break the chain, yeah. right? Yeah. This is how I'm not I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be like them and understand why they did. Yeah, and be and now what what will I do better? Mm-hmm. You know, knowing what I was given and now how will I improve. They say that a lot of times we we pass down the traditions of our fathers or pass down to us. And if we're not careful, we might just unknowingly pass them down. Mm-hmm. And some of those traditions could just be a habit. I've had clients where great grandpa was anxious. Uh, dad, grandpa was anxious, dad's anxious, I'm anxious, and I see my children are anxious. And as they go through this process, at some point you've got to decide, well, it's one thing to have anxiety. It's another thing 
to let it destroy you. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do to not keep handing it down and instead teach the skills? Yeah, or act out of anger and start, you know, uh, throwing things in the house. Or abuse. Abuse. Right. You know, if you don't, if you act unknowingly, this is just something that's passed down. We just do, you know, unknowing. But you said informed. I love that Mm -hmm. idea of informed. And then when you sit down and talk about it and realize what happened, I'm informed. So now I can choose, will I keep that or will I improve on that? Yeah. Or get rid of it. What if every generation just improved their their genetic mix and their skills to handle their mix a little bit. Yeah. I knew my father was an alcoholic perhaps and yeah. now I know that's a trigger in our family. So, okay, I could be handed that down as a family narrative or I can change it and write a new narrative. Yeah. So this is really powerful cool. stuff. And he says here, Dr. Duke recommends that parents pursue activities to create daily um, narratives or family history. Anything that could be small. He said, work on conveying that sense of history during holidays, vacations, uh, ride even a ride to the mall. The hokier the family tradition, he said, the more likely it is <laughs> to be passed down. He mentions his family custom of hiding frozen turkeys and canned pumpkin in the bushes during Thanksgiving, so children, <laughs> grandchildren will have to hunt for their supper like the pilgrims, and they love it. That this part comes so, so they become part of your family. So the bottom line is, if you want a happier, healthier family. Create, refine, and retell the story of your family's positive moments and the not-so-positive and what you will do to change those things. Yeah. Don't just make it all rosy. But, yeah, we had some hard stuff, too. Now how will we improve to help them to bounce back from the difficult times as well? That is so – that's powerful. Mm-hmm. That, I mean it, it makes sense. The quirkier, the weirder it is. I mean it's something you don't even know are a tradition, but – but all of a sudden you see your kids doing it. What do you do in your family that's oh, kind of a quirky tradition? we can't go there. <laughs> but it's – I don't know. It's pretty – we sing happy birthday. I just posted on my Facebook page and my Instagram page. We were singing happy birthday to my wife. And my father-in-law was in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And um, usually when the, all, the whole extended family is there, it sounds incredible. Like it's, it's like seven-part harmony happy birthday. Well, so I always just kind of ruin it. And in this one, my wife's actually – we're singing to my wife and she's going around the table and showing everyone at the table. And I just pretended like I was asleep with like a slack jaw and my head back. And But – so stupid things like ruining a song. Yeah. My have, I have a student who does the same thing. They come from all really, really great singers. And for their birthday song, they sing it as loud and as awful and as operatic – Terribly screeching yeah. as they possibly could. Tradition. Making it as bad as they can and they love it. They look forward to that yeah. every year. And that's interesting. What, what's what you'll miss, mm-hmm. right? So when this when the quirky grandpa that always says the same thing is gone, that's what you will miss. That's right. That's that's the power there. Yeah. So um, let me ask a couple yeah. questions of you, okay? Yeah. So do you know the story of how your grandparents met and fell in love? Y- yes, kind of. My grandparents, yes. Mm-hmm. It was – they were in a tiny mine mining community but yeah uh, I think parts of it were kept away from me because some of it was maybe inappropriate (laughs) for a child of my age Um, yeah I do know their story and they you know I'm sure we don't have time to do the whole story but one of the things about it is um, because my grandma was a very kind of religious devout family and my grandpa wasn't he was just a minor kind of smoker but 
She married for principle. She married the most principle-centered man on earth. And so when you hear why she fell in love with him, it was – well, some of it was just chemistry, of course. <laughs> and But then some of it was like I just knew he'd be a good man. And then he ended up becoming a really powerful miner wow. that made a lot of money and changed a lot of people's lives. And she saw the potential. Mm-hmm. Wow. What yeah. a great story, the potential pretty cool. she saw too. Not judged by the exterior but by the core. The character, yeah. yeah. What a great family yeah. story. Yeah. OK. How about this? Um, what's your uh, favorite hobby or what are your – your family like to do together um, tennis yeah okay we're, we're a tennis family great tennis anyone and uh do, do you collect anything do you display anything in your in your in, when you're in bedroom when you're a child or do you like to collect anything as an adult hmm i don't really collect anything okay. i collect a lot of viruses <laughs> <laughs> lately <laughs> been storing those away in my chest um i'm not a big collector no I collect quotes. Yeah. Like I have a million quotes. Okay, then you are a collector. Yeah, but I don't consider – yeah. Yeah, but see, you don't have thimbles, but mm. you have a bunch of books oh, yeah. of quotes. So and that we is, have that is like it. nine or a thousand quotes online. And I would argue that that's a lot more valuable than thimbles. Totally. Yeah, and mo- yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you, I, that's a great idea. I could just go print all of those and yeah. give those to my kids. For, I just gave you a Christmas gift idea for next – See what you just did? Yeah, yeah. No, they would love Quote collector. That. Yeah. Make a little book up. Yeah. Uh-huh. See? Okay. That's good. There you go. This is a great lesson, and I, I think we need it. People need to know. The number one need, right, is to know that you belong. belong. That you belong. Mm-hmm. Because if not, you're, you're an outsider in your life. Mm-hmm. That can't happen. And you don't have an anchor and a, a vision of where you've been and where you want to go. Man. Her name, Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom. And you're going to want to check out her website, a spoonfulofparenting.com. Great resources. All of her posts she's been writing for, I think... I was going to say centuries, but that would make you sound old. <laughs> Just for oh, I don't know, a few years, quite a few years, young years, but deep knowledge. Julie K. Nelson. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's uh, it's that time. It's just the time we get to just relax and go hang out with two of the funniest people you've ever met. By the way, and incredibly well-informed. Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew, and thank Thanks. you for such kind... You bet. When lying words. No, yeah, no. When it comes to sports, <laughs> I would say yes. No, but you. But again, you guys can jump into pop culture like nobody's business, and you can drop into song like La La Land. Hey, you may have something there for us, right? You. Hey, did you guys watch the game then? Huh? Oh, huh? baby, that was incredible. The fourth quarter was fantastic. Oh, was that cow! I loved that. Yeah, mm. What a finish! One I got exactly left. what I wanted. Yeah, Matt. you you did. Santa delivered for you. I wanted Steve Sarkeesian to perform well in his offensive coordinator duties for Alabama. I thought he did just fine. Yeah, and yeah. I wanted Clemson to beat Alabama. I that wanted happened too. I wanted Clemson to win too. I predicted that Alabama would win, but Clemson clutch, clutch, yeah, and Bama still looked good. They weren't like humiliated. No, Bama. Bama they was don't good. Get Bama was good. They got yeah. tired. Yeah, but who doesn't? Clemson ran a lot of plays. Like, what was it, like 90-something plays? 99, I think. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, Alabama's 66. I would have been tired by 90 for sure. Tough to play mm-hmm. high-level defense with that many plays. And they that running back, that incredible running back was injured? 
Yeah, yeah from Bama. Scarborough. Yeah, if he doesn't get hurt, I think Alabama wins. That yeah, game. he was a, plowing. He's got a broken leg. Oh, does he really? Broken bone in the lower part of his right leg. Yeah. It happens. Who doesn't break their leg? Yeah, Boy, he, broken uh, leg. He's probably got really thick bones, though. Dude. Because that guy plows. Reminds me of me when I was a child. The Washington Redskins quarterback, Kirk Cousins, sent out a picture of Bo Scarborough when he was a sophomore in high school and then juxtaposed a picture with him when he was a junior in high school. And he's like, yeah, there's a reason Alabama wasn't calling me. <laughs> that explains it. Hey, and the freshman, what was the, the, the freshman quarterback? Phenom. Unbelievable. Yeah, he's really good. Very composed, fat man. He's a good runner. Wow. Yeah, he, he struggles to throw the rock a little bit, but as a runner, he's fantastic. Yeah. What about, um, okay, I know what I need you to explain to me. What's the deal with the tents? Uh, on the sidelines now, we're seeing a lot of tents. Yeah. They want to hide. I think they go in there, they watch TV, maybe get some chips, some salsa. I've experienced this as a sideline reporter. Uh, some teams are just paranoid about everyone knowing what's wrong with the guy. Mm. Uh, and it's a competitive advantage. This year, BYU football, this coaching staff, they did not show their hand at all regarding injuries. Nor, I, I, it's pretty standard in sports like, all right, Spencer is out this week with uh, – or he's a game-time decision with a weak larynx. <laughs> it was more like we, we don't know what's going on. So these tents are becoming more common where you can just kind of hide. You can just go in there. What's going on, yeah. So it, it is funny, though, because you have like a six-foot-five guy ducking into like a five-foot-ten <laughs> tent. Like a little kitty tent. tent. To have his ankle wrapped or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Is it um, – I guess uh, it was part of the night last night was the fact that there was like 30 channels in some way connected to this game. And Kalani Sataki was on. Did you guys get a chance to see how he did? Yeah, we, I, we'll, we'll I play saw you some a, of that. We'll play you a soundbite. Is that going to uh, be on the show? His Good. comment on uh, missions. Really? So, so the Syracuse head coach, what's his name, Dino Barbers or something, he, he made a joke like, oh – it's easier to block when those offensive linemen are, are a little so bit older, older or older. Oh boy! So then Kalani Stocky had a masterful response. We'll play that for you. Oh, cool! Of. So we, uh, that's amazing. That of all things we're talking about, it's that during the big game. Yeah, they, and Kalani has good humor. And if Kalani is annoyed, he'll respond with humor. Mm-hmm. And he he did that. I could tell he was kind of bugged and kind of hey, this is my chance to kind of clear the air on missions. And this is one of my huge pet peeves. Yeah. And, and and Kalani uh, referenced uh, one of his references was, well, if it was that big of a competitive advantage, Alabama would be doing it, and they're not. And they don't have one guy that's, that's serving a mission right now. Huge, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, we'll play the full soundbite. Take with that. Are BYU players maybe more coachable and more humble and mature and can handle adversity a little bit better? Yeah, probably. Yeah, but they're not physically advantaged. Right, exactly. Come, Come on. on. Come on. Hey, uh, what do you think of uh, Dabo Sweeney? Is that Sweeney? Is that how you say his name? Sweeney, yeah. He's I've always enjoyed Dabo Sweeney Todd. I love his emotion. Yeah, I like it. It's he, genuine. He's just real, yeah. Genuine. He just looks like he'd be your neighbor. And oh, you're yeah. like, you're the Clemson head coach? Yeah. I thought you were an insurance salesman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, when he <laughs> talked about that, he's like, you know, after the game, he's like, for me to be here in this position, yeah, that was you know, cool. it's, just, it's a miracle. What a great, uh, yeah. It's just, that's right there. That's what it's supposed to be like, right there. That yeah. celebration. And their quarterback, do you think he's the uh, Clemson quarterback? Will he be going pro, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah. Yep. Deshaun Watson's going pro. Uh, that's that's going to happen. Why, why come back? You won the national championship. You helped Clemson break a 35-year streak. 
Move and he on. declared officially last night. So, so it's over. Yeah. Turn out the lights. He's done. The party's gone. He's gone. What, uh, what else is going to be on your show today? You're still doing your show, right? There's lots going on. Uh, the, since college football is over, the final AP poll came out. How many votes did BYU receive? Where did BYU finish in the final 1 through 128 ranking from uh, Paul Meyerberg of USA Today, ESPN Football Power Index. Also, our Twitter question today is a fun one. What will we be saying about BYU football on this day next year? Mm. David Nixon uh, will join us. He'll uh, weigh in on BYU's way-too-early win total for next football season. Steve Cleveland, President Coach Cleveland, on BYU hoops. What do the Cougars need to do before they play Gonzaga uh, in February? Party. See? Oh, yeah. Again, another great show. Uh, it is, by the way, you might want to drop this uh, just casually on the show somehow. It is House Plant Appreciation Day. Mm. This is water the day that plant. Water it. Love it. Caress you it. let our love fern die. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have a fern or a cactus if you had to choose? Uh, I'd go with a fern. I'd go with a foin. Foin. You, yeah. can't, you can't have enough foin. I'd, I'd choose the fern. Yeah, a cactus stinks, man. They're harder to hug, have you noticed? Yeah. I found a cactus patch when I was 12. Ooh. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> it was fantastic. I loved it. The was, next three days as I pulled stuff out of Needles. Well, what do you call them? Are they needles? I don't yeah, know. I, I, cactus I don't needles. Know. Um, they were painful. I know that. So today when you go home, pull up, hug your kids, hug your wife, but hide hug your kids, fern. Hide your wife. Yeah. And water your plants. Water your plants. Talk to them. Tell them you're sorry. Water your spiritual plants. I watched a minority report at yeah. the end of it last night. Okay. Great movie. When he when the plants attack him, that's what I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> really? when he's climbing over the wall. Yeah, yeah. The lady's plants like immobilize him yes. because he gets stung in the neck by this moving right. plant. <laughs> it <laughs> happens. Everyone breaks their leg like Bo Scarborough, yeah, and everyone hug- gets attacked by plants. Like I ain't that. hugging that plant. No, but maybe if the if the plant had had love earlier, <laughs> as a seedling, this wouldn't be happening. As a seedling, mm-hmm. I am Groot. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thank you. We'll be listening and watching. Bye. BYU Sports Nation. You're not going to want to miss them. They're in five minutes, folks. Five minutes, they'll be taking over unless I totally crash this car right into the snowbank. This uh, Tesla? Mm -hmm. This Tesla right into a snowbank. Hey, um, crazy uh, story that we've been teasing you about. Uh, Can you be charged with a DUI for caffeine? Apparently so. We'll see. I've never seen this before. California attorney Stacy Barrett tells The Guardian, um, she says, I've never even heard of it. Barrett's client is a 36-year-old Joseph Schwab, Schwab, and he's facing a misdemeanor DUI charge for caffeine. Schwab was pulled over in August of 2015 in Solano County while driving home from his job where he installs glass. And an agent from the State Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control said Schwab cut her off and was driving erratically. Barrett says a breathalyzer test at the scene showed 0% alcohol levels, but Schwab was booked into jail regardless. His blood was screened twice, testing negative for all sorts of drugs. The only positive result, caffeine. (laughs) Some audio at the scene of the arrest. A forensic toxicologist says he hasn't heard of anyone being charged with a DUI for caffeine in over 41 years. And Barrett calls the whole thing absurd. Schwab's toxicology report didn't specify how much caffeine was in his system, and he's not even sure if he consumed anything with caffeine that day. Well, then whatever it is, you're either a horrible driver with shakes or you got too much caffeine on board. 
We always like to also end the show with a hero story. This was a scary hero story. Mickey Wilson was on a chairlift in Arapaho Basin in Colorado, anticipating just another ski day with his friends Wednesday morning. It ended with Wilson being hailed a hero and contemplating the ways in which uh, events can conspire to create results that are randomly uh, good, not not randomly good or bad. They're just life, just events. Anyway, in the chair ahead of him was a friend, a geologist from Alaska. But when the man tried to get off the lift, he became entangled and ended up dangling above the ground. He was not only caught, he was literally being hung by his neck because of his backpack that was stuck on the lift. The man was hanging out there three to four feet uh, below the chair with his feet dangling about 10 feet above the snow. It was one of the most scariest things I've ever seen, he said. Just seeing a person getting the life sucked out of him, I stopped. I kind of stopped thinking and just started acting. Wilson, a 28-year-old from Golden, Colorado, has studied physics and metallurgy and is working on his, has obtained a master's and a bachelor's degree. And he just said, I got to do something. Wilson got to the lower tower. He climbed onto the cable, sliding about 30 feet to the man in distress. He grabbed a knife, cut the man down, and uh, with a lot of twists and turns, he got out of the situation. Saved the man's life. Heroes, folks. Um, doctors say that if you're not careful, you know, he didn't break his neck, but he could have. He could have suffered brain damage, but he didn't. Anyway, he did save the life of a friend. That's what it takes. That had to have been gutsy to climb up, down a pole, up on the lift, across the wire, down to the other chair. Are you kidding me? That's what a hero does right there. But sometimes you're not expected to do that much to be a hero. Sometimes you just need to forgive somebody. Let something go. See the good in the world. Be positive. Uplift the people around you. You know, share good stuff. Compliment people. That sometimes is the only heroic action a lot of us need every day. Anyway, that's the show, my friends. We can't do it without you. We appreciate you being with us. We'll be back again tomorrow for a full three hours to give you more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. You can also find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on go to BYUradio.org. We're everywhere. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, take care of each other and make it a great one.